I literally developed a program, and the smartest thing I did was to bring in smart people, and we co-created what to me is still the closest thing to an educational nirvana that I have experienced in my life. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Greetings, fellow simians of the great simulation. Welcome to episode 33 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Perhaps it goes without saying, but by far the best thing about hosting a podcast is that it enables you to have in-depth conversations with fascinating people with whom you wouldn't otherwise be able to converse. If you were to email someone and say, hi, can I pick your brains for four hours sometime? They would likely ignore your email, politely decline, or something a little more direct. But if you say it's for a podcast, to my continuing delight and astonishment, they often say yes. Today, I'm speaking with Jay McTie, someone I first encountered on Ollie Lovell's excellent podcast, The Education Research Reading Room. They had a really in-depth, knotty conversation about the difference between deep knowledge and understanding that I still chew over from time to time. I first made contact with Jay over a year ago, and we've had several lengthy conversations since. He's incredibly generous with his time and expertise, and he's also been a great mentor to Kate McAllister as she builds her dream school, or what she really describes as an alternative to school in the Dominican Republic. Jay is an incredibly knowledgeable, amiable, and almost enviable interlocutor. A few times in this conversation, I comment on the clarity of his thinking. It really is something to behold. About an hour in, I ask him a question about transfer, and he just goes, I have four things to say about that. And then he just lays them out in a kind of perfect mini essay. And he does that a few times throughout the conversation. Toward the end of this conversation, Jay reveals the secrets to his impressive mental clarity. I'm sorry if this is embarrassing you, Jay, if you're listening to this. So it's worth sticking around to the end. This isn't the longest conversation I've had on this podcast. That accolade goes to Ian Cunningham, with whom I spoke for five hours. But I split that conversation across two episodes because it was only episode two of the podcast and I didn't want to freak people out. But today I'm releasing the full four hours of our recent conversation because, well, now you hardy listeners have been in training for over a year, I think you can take it. In this conversation, we mainly spoke about Leading Modern Learning, a blueprint for vision-driven schools, the 2015 book that Jay co-authored with Greg Curtis. Often, if you look at a school's website, they'll have some sort of vision statement, unlocking potential or creating curious lifelong learners or something along those lines. But then when you look at what the school is doing day to day, you think, well, I'm not sure that that's going to produce the outcomes that you claim to aspire to. Leading Modern Learning builds on Jay's previous work on understanding by design to guide the reader through the process of taking vision statements really seriously and then backward designing your school in such a way that you will produce the kinds of young people who will be able to thrive and flourish in this bewildering, rapidly changing world of ours. In the conclusion to his foreword to the book, Yong Zhao writes, Education is in the future's business in that it is responsible for preparing students to live successfully in the future, however success is defined. But it should not be about preparing them to cope with the future or simply wait for the arrival of the future. It should be preparing them to proactively create the future. To train future creators, we need future-oriented educational institutions which are drastically different from institutions of the past and present. 
To create future-oriented educational institutions, we need to have a process, a plan, and a set of tools. This book offers such a blueprint, and an excellent one at that. By way of a teaser, I'll return to this question of preparing young people for the future in the next episode of the podcast with the social historian John Higgs. But for now, without further ado, I will hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Jay McTighe. I hope you enjoy the show. Jay McTighe, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Uh, very good to be with you. We speak at last. It's been a, it's been a little while in the planning this one. Um, so I've really enjoyed diving into your work in these last few years since I came across it, and I've learned a great deal from it from uh, from Understanding by Design, um, which you wrote with Grant Wiggins a little while ago. Now, what year was that when it first came out? Well, the first the first edition was published at the end of 1997, so it's right. been about 25 years. Yeah, 25th anniversary next year. Um, and also Teaching for Deeper Learning, which I really enjoyed, especially there's a brilliant um, chapter in there about note-taking, uh, yeah. which I got a lot out of. That was really useful. Uh, and more recently, Leading Modern Learning, um, which we're going to focus on today, which you've co-authored. You like to co-author with people, I've noticed. I do, and, and partly because it's a thinking process, it's an intellectual journey, and, and when you work with smart people, you, you bounce off each other, and, and, and your, work, your, your thinking is sharper and your work is clearer. Yeah, I think I might take that on board. Having spent most of this year like en engrossed in a completely solo, essentially what's been a writing process, it's quite grueling. I would love to have had somebody to kick some ideas around with, so I might, I might well follow your lead on that. But your output is pretty prolific as well. How many, how many books is it now? Do you, do you even keep count? Well, I've had 18 books, although uh, two of them are, are second editions, but I, I count them anyway. Um, and then I've been doing um, a lot more short form, you know, writing uh, articles and blogs uh, this past year, although I did have three, three books published in the last 20 months. So, <laughs> Right. OK, so you're not slacked off too much. So so leading modern learning, what was the rationale for this book? I would describe it in its essence as based on the ideas of understanding by design, which for people that aren't familiar with that, is essentially a curriculum development framework. And so leading modern learning builds on the, the construct or the ideas of understanding by design, but with two particular emphases, one of which is a more systemic emphasis, i.e., how do you think about an overall uh school or, or school district, um, not just at the classroom level, but, but systemically. Um, and, and looking at what I like to call a curriculum and assessment system into which individual teaching and individual learning for students would be nested. And, and the second idea in leading modern learning is a very deliberate fusion of what we might call cross or transdisciplinary skills or competencies um, working in conjunction with more traditional academic disciplines. So in a nutshell, that's 
my intent in leading modern learning. What would what would a, a system for modern learning look like? What would be its elements? And how would we integrate by design important skills and competencies that cut across traditional disciplines? Right. Thank you. So this is something, this idea of backwards design, I absolutely love. And we often use similar language in my work at the Institute of Education as well. We often talk about starting with the end in mind. But I certainly haven't been as rigorous as you have been in actually thinking about what that looks like at each stage, going back from this idealised state in the future to the present state now and how we, how we get from A to B. And so I, um, I'm, I'm learning a lot from this and I'm hoping to learn even more from you today. Um, and so let, let's start, before we get into it, let's just start with, this, with the, the title, Leading Modern Learning, and the foreword by Yong Zhao, who's going to be on the podcast soon, um, sort of grabs that issue by the horns, really, in the opening sentence and says, the 21st century was once the distant future. <laughs> and we're both old enough to remember when that was the case. And that's the problem with lots of the language around the 21st century learning. In the 80s and 90s, that was, <laughs> that was futuristic right it was like we need to do th things differently because the future is going to be different now that we're 20 odd years into uh that century it no longer sounds so futuristic and it's led to some people sort of using it almost as a in a pejorative sense to sort of say oh well, this is this like woolly-minded stuff what's different about what people needed to learn in the 19th 20th century or the 20th century hence you i, I imagine that that's why you're you're using the term more explicitly modern learning rather than 21st century learning yeah that's exactly right um you know i <clears throat> pardon me this is my 50th year as a professional educator and I remember working in the mid-70s through the mid-80s, uh, particularly part of my career was with, quote, gifted programs, working with very able students, not always uh, good game players in the school sense, but but very capable, intellectually able. Right. Um, and, and I remember the things we were doing in, in gifted education in the mid-70s to mid-80s were what we would now call 21st century skills, problem and project-based learning personalized learning, genius hour. We were doing those things back then. So when I hear the term 21st century skills, both I understand the connotation, but I also have a wry smile saying this stuff isn't new. <laughs> um, having said that, you know, some things that we do know about the world, you know, arguably the world is increasingly complex, interconnected in ways it's never been before. Knowledge is continuing to expand in many, many fields. Technology is hugely impactful, you know, particularly when we start looking at matters of artificial intelligence, big data, robotics. Um, and arguably, the world is, and maybe always has been, unpredictable. You know, and the, and the pandemic that we, we are now suffering through, and, and doesn't seem to be over, in fact, was not on many radar screens 24 months ago. And yet it's been one of the most impactful experiences of, of many of our lives. Um, and so while 21st century skills, quote, aren't new, the world has changed. It's different from when we came up in school. Um, and so clarity about what we're preparing students for in this, quote, modern world 
uh, needs to be part of our thinking about what a modern education should provide. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I also am very aware that there, there many people would disagree with that idea, that they don't think that things need to radically change because of this current moment that they're in. And if you think that, then you probably should switch off now because the rest of this conversation is going to be very much um, about thinking about why things need to be different. And I think that just to go back to Young's foreword, the final paragraph, I'll just share for listeners. Um, he writes, education is in the future's business in that it is responsible for preparing students to live successfully in the future, however success may be defined. But it should not be about preparing them to cope with the future or simply wait for the arrival of the future. It should be preparing them to proactively create their future. To train future creators, we need future-oriented educational institutions, which are drastically different from institutions of the past and present. To create future-oriented educational institutions, we need to have a process, a plan, and a set of tools. This book offers such a blueprint and an excellent one at that. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely persuaded. And, you know, we were just talking offline. Um, you know, you, you said that you, you would describe yourself as a progressivist, although that, that some of your work sort of, you know, like spans across different fields. And that, that, and that, that you, I think we were saying just offline now that you, you under, your work on understanding by design was more agnostic in the sense that it was sort of, it wasn't really taking a, a particular view of how things should be. Whatever you want your curriculum to be, this backward design process will help you to get there. But, but in this book, in Leading Modern Learning, it is more explicitly about, you know, we need to change things if we need to create a different vision for, for the future of education and then work backwards from that. And it, by its nature, it is more of a progressive book. Would that be fa a fair way to characterize it, would you say? Uh, yes, I would. But I would like to comment on the underpinnings of Leading Modern Learning uh, is the understanding by design framework. And understanding by design its big ideas are in its title. So for 25 years, uh, Grant Wiggins and I have, have proposed and endorsed the idea that the focus of education should be developing and deepening student understanding, ultimately so students are able to transfer or apply their learning to new things. Um, and that idea can be applied in more traditional school settings where the teaching and the curriculum is focused on disciplinary knowledge and skills in the various uh, subject areas, we still propose that we should be teaching for understanding as opposed to just superficial coverage of lots of, of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and the by design part of our title refers to a quote, backward design process that's certainly not an original idea, but we've found it to be a powerful idea for planning. And backward design, as you know, could be applied by individual teachers planning units of study with lessons within. It can be applied by a team of teachers working together. And in Leading Modern Learning, we propose it should be the systemic planning process where we're planning an entire curriculum backward from desired ends or, or desired goals. So, that's a long way of saying understanding by design is an agnostic framework in the sense that it can be applied in, in, in quite traditional school settings. And the way I would apply it there is to say, if you're teaching subject matter in, in fairly traditional structures, don't you want your students to understand what you teach? 
And if so, let's explore what that means for how you frame the content, how you instruct and, and engage students in learning, and what evidence you collect through your assessments. Um, and let's plan backward from those ends. That works in traditional settings, but it also applies in a more progressive sense. So in leading modern learning, we're simply saying, let's be clear about the, the, the knowledge, the skills, the competencies, the habits of mind that we think are most critical for success in the quote, modern world. Um, with clarity about those ends, let's plan backward and construct our curriculum, not just individual teachers, but the overall curricular system. Let's think about the evidence we need that shows that students are growing in these capacities and that will impact how teachers teach at the classroom level. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And and like, so there's an idea that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is not that we necessarily need to change the way that we educate children, but that we need to diversify the system. You know, I don't think that we're ever going to move completely away from, from the, the system at a system level that we've got. But it clearly doesn't work for at least a significant minority of young people, and so I'm seeing the the, the process that we're going to be talking about today. I'm not I'm I'm not picturing that this is going to be a blueprint for every school to transform into a a futures facing school, but that a significant minority of schools could could um could go in this direction. And if you're a teacher who's aligned with those kinds of values and that kind of vision, and if you're a parent of a kid and, and you're, you're you're a young person who who fits with that as well. It seems like it would be a sensible way to go forward to diversify the system. Um, is that is that what you think as well in terms of of, of how applicable is this to to pre existing schools compared with sort of schools that are setting up with a different mission in mind? Well, again, I, I think it's a backward design question. To me, the first question is what are your goals in your system? A system being a school, or in the U.S., we have school districts uh, in public public uh, education. And so the question is, what are your goals? The more traditional schools primarily focus on academic content embodied in, uh, in the US state or national standards, or in Australia, the Australian national curriculum. Um, and, and schools are organized with those goals in mind. We wanna teach kids subject matter content that has been specified uh, you know, by grade levels and, and within disciplines. Um, so that's a, a traditional structure. Um, we can apply the ideas of understanding by design to that. But leading modern learning is arguing that there are some broader goals that cut across disciplines. There are competencies, skills, and habits of mind that are important in, in the world today and that we should be preparing students for. Um, and so, you know, form should follow function. If we're clear about alternative goals or outcomes beyond just subject matter learning, then we should plan backward to create the structures that would enable that. Now, I can talk in, in a lot more detail about what that looks like from a curriculum assessment, instructional and, and structural point. And the idea of differentiation or diversity is embedded within those elements. 
Okay, right. And so I like this idea that form should follow function because it's the case that if you look at like most school websites, they usually have some sort of value statement that's about preparing lifelong learners or resilient learners or independent learners who are ready for the for the world beyond the gates. But then you look at what they're doing and they're following a traditional subject-based curriculum. You think, well, that I can't see how that how A is going to lead you to B. Um, and so uh, what I love about your approach is that you just <laughs> you, you start at the other end and you work backwards in this very systematic way. So let's get into it. And then once we've gone through this process, I'd quite like just as a little fun exercise to sort of to go through the process um, as an exercise and see if we can invent our dream school together. So let's do that at the end. So first of all, so chapter one is called Creating a Futures Oriented Vision and Mission. And it's a very rigorous approach to creating, you know, ideas and, and impact goals and so on about what the future um, is going to look like. So, so can you walk us through this? How can we develop an, an informed view of the future to drive this vision for modern learning that we want to be heading towards? If, if it's recognized that schooling and education is a, is a social process and it involves the community, it involves parents, students, as well as professional educators, as well as employers and, and even the political establishment. If we want to make the case for a particular kind of schooling, I, I believe we need to involve lots of people in helping to, to shape and form our vision. Um, and once we have clarity and agreement on the vision, then we plan backward to develop the right structures. And so our first chapter is, in fact, progressive, progressively oriented in the sense that it's saying, you know, we can have traditional views of schooling, i.e. students need to learn subject matter in traditional disciplinary silos uh, and pass tests. Um, but if we believe that the world is calling for, you know, a broader array of, of competencies and, and skills and habits of mind, well, let's try to form a vision of what those are and use that as the basis for constructing or, or rebuilding our school, if you will. Um, and so the first chapter basically proposes that crafting a vision of modern education should involve multiple stakeholders. And we've described various processes for engaging people, not just professional educators, but parents, community members, employers in in, in a thoughtful exploration of, of what kinds of, what kind of a person do we want to produce? We describe a number of, of processes and exercises uh, that can be used for that um, purpose. Uh, the most basic of which is to ask a straightforward question. At the end of 12, 13, 14 years of schooling, you know, pre-university, what kind of person do we want to develop and why? Um, in the U.S., there's been a, a pretty uh, substantial movement um, under the heading of profile of a graduate. And the profile of a graduate work basically asked that question. Uh, let's, let's try to envision or profile the type of a student we want to graduate, and let's be as specific as possible in the, in the outcomes uh, of, of such a person. Um, and we do that ideally with a community-based process. Um, as you noted, typically the responses that emerge from such an exercise are quite comparable and similar. We want to produce people who are able to think critically, to 
be able to think creatively and, and, and innovatively, to work well with others in teams and groups in various settings, to be able to communicate well, not just in writing or orally, but across the various media platforms we now have. A big one is often uh, we want to produce self-directed learners with the recognition that that you're going to be a lifelong learner in today's world. Things are changing quickly and being static is 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 not optimal. Um, and sometimes habits of mind are brought in like empathy um, or willingness to embrace other cultures. Um, global citizenry is sometimes listed. And, and so you get these predictable lists of qualities or some people would call them competencies that emerge from such an exercise. Now, to your point, many schools that I see have such statements of outcome in their missions, but the acid test from a backward design point of view is if these are your goals or these are the outcomes you, you claim to value, where will I see it in your curriculum? What evidence are you collecting that students are growing in their capacity to be a self-directed learner or a critical thinker? And what instructional and learning experiences are developing and deepening these competencies? That's the backward design question once you have the quote end in mind. Yeah, thank you. So can we just kind of play the devil's advocate for a moment? So I'm, I'm thinking of the, the people in the traditionalist camp, say, who would say that um, and I think that they have at least half a point to make here that to, you were talking about like the, the, the typical list that comes up, the, the, the um, profile of a graduate or this person that we want to that we want the school system to produce, that they're able to think critically and creatively was the first one. Uh, and just to pause on that for a second, like lots of people who are in the traditionalist camp say, that uh, that in order to think to be able to think critically about something, you need to know an awful lot about that thing. That that's the that that's primarily, um, you know, the the thing. If you want to if you want to think creatively about how to, um, you know, roll out a vaccination program, say you need to know a lot about health systems and vaccines and the temperature that vaccines are stored at and how to how to mobilize people. If you want to if you want to create think creatively about how to fix the tax system so that we can close all these tax tax havens like you need to know a lot about how tax systems work and tax law and regulations and so on and so they would argue that the knowledge rich curriculum is the vehicle that will deliver you to this progressive um end so 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 people in the traditionalist camp they, they sort of they agree that they want people to to think critically and creatively but they they have a different view they think that it's just it's all about the knowledge what would be your response to that? First of all, it's a false dichotomy. I mean, clearly, you as as a, a, a phrase that I'm fond of is, you can have facts without thinking, but you can't have thinking without facts. So clearly, knowledge is is important, um, and no one is arguing. At least I'm certainly not arguing that we're going to throw out traditional content and just do these so-called 21st century cross-disciplinary skills. Um, so that's part one, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. But let's, let's play out the knowledge side for the people that are arguing for a knowledge-rich curriculum. And by the way, Grant Wiggins and I have, have been longtime advocates for rich disciplinary content. But, but that's, 
you got you got to parse what exactly does that mean for the people that want a knowledge rich curriculum does that mean covering more factual information with the goal of having students be able to remember it and, and recall it on demand if that's the conception of a knowledge rich curriculum you're confronting an immediate problem which is there's too much content and not enough time to teach it all and in some fields like science and history by definition the knowledge base is growing daily so to summarize for the moment it's a false dichotomy to say we're either, either going to have a knowledge rich curriculum or we're going to focus on these you know cross disciplinary thinking uh, type skills you need both but when we talk about a knowledge rich curriculum this is where understanding by design kicks in we have long said that the goal is not to try to cover lots of information for rec recall the goal is to uncover the content to explore the quote big ideas of the discipline and the big ideas are the transferable concepts and processes um, and so when i think about a knowledge rich curriculum i'm thinking about one that honors the big ideas of the disciplines now two other quick points related what is a discipline a discipline is more than just an accretion of knowledge in a given field a discipline refers to a disciplined way of thinking which is the way in which historians scientists artists have developed the knowledge base in their disciplines a disciplined way of thinking talks about the processes of thinking of generating knowledge of validating knowledge of breaking paradigm and so when people say yeah i want a knowledge rich curriculum i say of course we do let's go to the discipline the meaning of the term and let's make sure we're not just thinking of a knowledge rich curriculum as an accretion of facts in the heads of the of the learner but that we're engaging them in doing the subject in applying the thinking in the subject as a way of of both understanding the content and building the skill sets that will produce more knowledge in the future yeah yeah thank you that's a good answer and i mean i, I think that my answer would be if i could put it shortly is that it, like that 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 to have knowledge rich traditional subject disciplines in the in the mix is necessary but it's not sufficient clearly because there are lots of people who for example who have studied science to high school for example and who believe like in the QAnon conspiracy theory or who are anti-vax or who uh you know like climate change deniers or whatever like there's there's no shortage of evidence of people who aren't able to think in a in an accurate you know manner right like they're not able to think of in a way that, that like they, they get distorted like if you talk to people who are anti-vax for example they often say things like oh well on, on anti-vax websites there are they're, they're, they're doctors and they've got all letters after their names and they're all saying that this vaccine is untested and it's not safe and so on um and that's you know that's true but there is there's like way more doctors who, with other letters after their name who think the opposite and like that's a that's a fallacy right it's the argument from authority that you think just because this doctor's got letters after their name they must be true and when you when i've spoken that through with people uh, they go oh that's interesting i hadn't really thought of that but so it's clear that like like the, the knowledge rich curriculum is is not equipping people with the skills to be able to think in this rational way and also i think if you look at the research like the research on 
critical thinking, it's really quite abundant and clear that there are definitely domain-specific aspects to this, and it's right that you need to know a lot about the tax system, but there are also domain-general, what you describe in the book as transdisciplinary aspects of critical thinking that do transfer across domains. And if you don't think that's the case, then you need to read <laughs> the, the literature mm -hmm. on critical thinking because it's abundantly, you know, um, evident. So, so I hope that we've I hope that we've laid that one to rest. So, so, so in the in the in this first chapter, there's a few of the tools that you just mentioned. I wonder if we could just pick a couple of them out because I really like the, the couple. One of them is polarities. This idea of using polarities as a way to sort of to stimulate debate. So just to share a few, one of them might be, um, will learning focus on local or national contexts or should it develop a global perspective? So you've got like a local versus global um, dimension. Or do we want to develop students destined to be employees or employers? Or you know, is success defined as individual success or collaborative success? Do we want to define like success as being better than other people or being able to work well with other people in a, in a world that's made of other people? And so am I right in suggesting that, like, so, and I love as well what you said earlier about how you put um, a, a, a mixed group of people together. This is not just teachers <laughs> deciding how the world should be and being social engineers. You were talking about bringing in parents and, you know, like young people themselves and having a mix of people who are all sort of going through a process of of working with these questions. So this, these polarities, like, have you have you done this work with with these mixed groups of people, or have you have you facilitated? Do you know that other school of other schools that have done this kind of work? And how does this polarities exercise work in practice? Oh, those are great questions. Um, first of all, the, the polarities are, I think, a very interesting intellectual provocation that that pushes beyond the, the more general question of what kind of learner do you want to produce at the end of 12 or 13 years of schooling. Um, to be quite honest, uh, we haven't used that extensively, um, partly because it, it takes time to cultivate a diverse group of stakeholders uh, and they need time to meet. But if in fact a school or a school district has an interest in really probing what uh, future oriented education should, should be and the kind of person we wanna produce, those polarities provide a really interesting uh, vehicle for those explorations. Um, so we, we put them out there in the book just for that reason, to let school leaders or, or community leaders or even policymakers have a, a construct or a tool that they can use to encourage people to think more deeply about the question of the, the, the larger purpose uh, of education. Um, and having said that, it's also one that you can use and we have used with faculties, uh, with, with, with teacher teams. A simple one, for instance, is to what extent should our curriculum and the learning experiences be standardized versus the other polarity would be truly individualized. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of implication when you just simply explore that question. Um, and if people can come to some degree of consensus that we don't want everything rigidly standardized because that doesn't support the diversity of learners, et cetera. But we also, at a practical level, can't individualize everything, at least at the present time. So where along the continuum will we fall? And, and then what does that mean for our practice? 
And when form follows function, a uh, question comes up, you might say the idea of rigid age group, uh, age-based grouping may need to be considered or adjusted if in fact we believe that not all kids learn it the same way, have the same skill sets, have the same interests, and therefore standardizing grouping by age group may not be optimal. That, that could be a, a therefore in the exploration of the polarities between standardized and, and individualized. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And 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 another tool that 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 sort of goes hand in hand with the polarities thing is the idea of a magic square, or I think more formally, it's known as a Cartesian plane. It's just like a two by two, like like graph, if you like. And and so there's an example in the book where you've got one axis going from left to right. If you can picture this, listeners, going from standardized to personalized, as Jay was just talking about. And then the other axis that goes from top to bottom down the middle of that line is from multi-sourced to single-sourced. So the, uh, the multi-sourced end, so, so the question there is like, will schools dictate the primary sources of learning or will students in the future be accessing resources from many suppliers, for example, accessing MOOCs and, and you know, all of the information that's available online, or should it still be coming through like the national curriculum? And we won't go through this now because I think it would take too long, but you can get the idea that you can see how this plays out and that like, if you cross those two axes, you get four very different looking futures about, you know, about how we're going to end up. And so again, you can see how you can work through this set of tools with this diverse group of people, secure buy-in and uh, and come up with a, v- a vision that people can get behind. Yes. Um, have you got anything to add on the on the magic squares front? Well, just just a quick point. You could create a magic square with any any points around the uh, the, the axes and present it as a both a thought ex- not not a thought experiment but an exercise with faculty or with teachers. Um, and and ask them to plot their point. You know, what quadrant do you fall into or would you ideally want to fall into and how far up or down would you be? Let them do that individually, then share their, their um, visuals or their graphics and explain what they meant by where they placed their point. That's a very interesting way of revealing what people are thinking or what they envision as optimal. Um, and it, it, it opens the door for interesting conversations. It sure does. I can, I can see that. So, so let's, let's move on. And to, and to so, so we, through, through this sort of these activities, you, you develop a vision of the future. These are the kinds of kids and you could maybe sort of like, we often do an exercise where we sort of like, we ask people to connect emotionally. So we create this utopian future. Let's say that, let's say there's a school who wants to, I was working with some schools recently wanting to work on oracy, uh, sp- spoken language. So we're like, okay, imagine yourself three years down the line where you've killed it. Like, like oracy could not be better. You are like a shining beacon of best practice. People flock from miles around to come and see this amazing thing. The kids are super confident at interpersonal talk. They can deliver a knockout speech to a room full of adults. They can adapt their speech to different audiences. You know, they can, whatever, take part in formal structured debates. So you you get the idea. You, You flesh out this utopian vision of the future. And then we ask them to sort of connect emotionally to that, if you like. So it's like, what would what would the children, what would the young people say, think, and feel in this imagined future? And that could be like, and and that's sort of intentionally vague, if you like. It's like, what might they say to themselves? What might you overhear them saying? What might they? What might you imagine they say when they go home to their parents at night? 
Likewise, for teachers, what would you say, think and feel in this imagined future? And you can do that for different stakeholders. What would it be like for parents and carers if their kids were really confident, effective communicators and so on? And then we do the same thing for now. What's it like now? What do the children say, think and feel now when they're asked to participate in, you know, in a group or if asked to talk to somebody that they've never spoken to before or whatever it might be? What's it like now? And so you get this very sort of stark um, difference often between where you are and where you want to be. And sometimes that can be a powerful activity, but also it can seem quite daunting because people then go, I don't really know how we get from here to there. Like it just seems like too big a leap. I don't know how we're going to, what a step-by-step process of change looks like. Um, but but so 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 do through through doing activities like this, you set a vision and and you sort of connect emotionally to that vision. I can see that by the, the, the questions that you're asking, and then let's move from vision to mission and grasp this thorny, <laughs> the thorny question of how to write a good vision statement, which or I beg your pardon, a mission statement. Um, what what's a good mission statement uh, look like for you, and and what's this, what, how would you define the difference between a vision and a mission? Well, let me start with with the, you know, that question. To me, a vision is an, an idealized but compelling um, endpoint where you want to, where you ideally want to be, or in this case, develop students who have these these capacities. And the exercises that we have in chapter one, the thinking about the profile of the graduate, engaging in the polarity discussion to try to tease out more specifically what we envision um, helps to to achieve that. Now, for me, a mission has particular qualities. And quite frankly, uh, I don't see this too often in school missions. What I see too often are what I would describe as vague apple pie and mother kinds of statements, like we believe all children can learn. and so Grant Wiggins and I have been pretty hard-nosed about what we describe a mission to be. We think that a good mission is specific, defining or describing what we want students to be able to do with their learning in the long run. And more specifically, we refer to those as long-term transfer goals. We believe that the mission statement should specify with clarity and specificity what we want students ideally to be able to do with their learning. And so the mission statements are performance-based and accordingly they can be assessed. And by assessed, I don't mean with a standardized test, but I mean we can see evidence that a student is developing or has oracy capacity or is able to self-direct their own learning or can think critically about an issue of which they are learning something. Yeah. Okay. Let's. So let's come on to some good examples in a moment. But first, I wonder if there, if any listeners um, are working in schools, um, if you if you know what your what your like my one was the, the, uh, unlocking potential. One of the schools that I worked in, which I never really understood, because even if you unlock potential, it doesn't mean that you're actually realizing it. It just means that it's sort of it's still potential. It's just somehow unlocked. Um, but let's look at some more examples. So you were saying like such and such a school believes that all students can learn. You just described or we. Pre- we prepare all of our students for a college uh, or a career, or we nurture future citizens to be ready to succeed in a rapidly changing world. You describe these these mission statements as ambiguous and trite, that they lack the, the specificity necessary to guide actions. 
and they leave you asking, for example, what does it mean for students to reach their potential? Or what does it mean to be fully prepared for college or a career? Or what, should, what do we want a future citizen to do? And then you go on to talk about another characteristic of poorly constructed mission statements, which is those that focus on what the, what the school or, or programme, for example, will provide for its students. So they talk about providing a warm or caring or nurturing environment uh, in, in partnership with parents or um, offering a rigorous you know, curriculum. Um, and and, and you, you talk about how these descriptions may sound appealing, but the, the, these, these adjectives of warm and caring and nurturing and rigorous are descriptions of means and not ends. And that's what you're talking about, that we need to be focusing on like describing the characteristics of the young people that we're working towards so that we have this sort of fixed star that we're that we're orienting ourselves around yes that's exactly right again the the prefacing phrase is what do we want students to be able to do with their learning in the long run and our mission statements should specify the answer or the second part of that those statements uh, they should be performance-based accessible and specific enough to operationalize and by that i mean a, a teacher of students in grade one or first grade and a, and a high school teacher should be able to to take those outcome statements, those mission-based uh, transfer goals um, and say, here's what I do or here's what I could do to help build uh, these capacities, these competencies. Yeah, yeah. And so... You talk about how there's two types of mission-based outcomes, and this links to what we we're talking about earlier. You've got disciplinary outcomes, like we want like mathematicians to be X, Y, and Z, and then you've got transdisciplinary outcomes. These things that are more about the sort the things you were talking about about dispositions and habits of mind and and what have you. So I'll just share a couple from the book, if I may, for the benefit of listeners. Um, so as in the transdisciplinary um, column. We have the mission of X school is to develop learners who are independently able to firstly function as self-directed learners, secondly apply critical thinking and ethical judgment when analysing issues and taking ac actions, and thirdly effectively communicate ideas for a variety of purposes and audiences using varied media. Um, so this is a bit more like it, isn't it? You can see how this is describing what these young people are going to be like um and then i'll just share some some of the disciplinary ones as well and we'll maybe we'll maybe talk a bit more about like the balance as you see it like how should these be balanced so we've got an example here the mission of the maths department um sorry you call it mathematics over there don't you uh is to develop learners who are independently able to firstly effectively use strategies and sound mathematical reasoning to tackle never-seen-before problems involving real-world and theoretical challenges. So it's like hyper-specific there, isn't it? And an example from, from history, say, like the, the history department develops learners who are able to critically appraise historical claims and use that to analyse contemporary issues. You know, so again, it's we're getting hyper-specific and I, I can see, you know, I think that anybody listening to this will be able to see how much better <laughs> those ki kinds of, of mission statements are than that general, like you say, motherhood and apple pie, um, isn't it all lovely here type approach? Yeah, that, that's right. So we're, we're arguing that the mission should be specific, performance-based, but, but not so global or, uh, or amorphous that 
a teacher can't look at each of those statements and say, here's what I can do in my grade level or in my course um, to, to help develop these. Um, you know, at root here is really a two-prong approach, which goes back to the discipline idea that we mentioned earlier. There's knowledge and there's know-how. And we're arguing that the mission of school should specify the fusion of those cast as what will students be able to do with their learning, mm. combining knowledge and know-how, content and process working together with authentic purposes in mind. Now, I also want to highlight the, the, one of the words in the STEM statement, independently. So let's unpack that. If a school mission says we want to develop students who on their own, independently, can think critically about contemporary issues or uh, tackle messy problems using mathematics, we can then ask the question, to what extent does our current curriculum and our current teaching and our current assessments, for that matter, serve to develop student autonomy and independence. One of the observations I've made in my 50-year career as an educator is that in some schools, when you look at practice, we're actually kind of doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've seen schools, particularly at the high school level, where everything is so teacher-directed and so specified and so step-by-step -step that learners, in some cases, develop a learned helplessness. And you hear it when you hear kids saying, how many words does it have to be? I don't know what to do. What do you want? You know, in, in some cases, our system have, have um, squeezed out autonomy. Everything is compliance. Everything is teacher directed. And, and in, so if you had 12 or 13 years of that, it's not likely that you're going to produce a self-directed learner who is capable independently of enacting these these complex processes. Yeah, and I think that any teacher would, not any teacher, lots and lots of teachers would, would resonate with that, I think. I, I asked that question on Twitter a while ago, like what are the kinds of helpless questions that you get asked? <laughs> and I tend not to, I, and I, was, I tend not to get that much response on Twitter, but I was inundated with responses with those kinds of questions. Where should I put the rubbish? Where do I get the water from? I've finished question one. What should I do now? You know, like that stuff is is everywhere. And, and teachers talk about, especially primary teachers, but secondary as well, or they get to the bottom of their page and they go, I've, I've reached the bottom of the page. And they're like, right. turn, turn it over. Right. <laughs> Try to turn it over. There's a whole blank thing on the other side. Um, but like, it, it's, it's sort of funny in a way. Um, but also it's, absolutely not at all funny that we're that we're preparing young people um or so or so inadequately preparing them for a world where beyond the beyond the school gates there isn't going to be somebody there to tell them what to do and what page to turn to turn to and how long to start for and what color pen to write in and what have you like <laughs> all of that micromanaging stuff it's all done i think with the best will in the world in that like we're trying to use use the limited resource of time as effectively as we can um, to get the kids, to get as many possible kids to get the highest possible grades that they possibly can. Um, as, as though that's like an unquestioned good. And, and as though that's like the, the, the only metric that we should be looking at is like, how can we get the kids to get the, mass, the maximum possible grades? 
But that's an interesting question already because sometimes when you when you work with kids, they don't want to get an A sometimes. They're like, actually, I'll be okay with a C. I only need a C or it's a level level six now or five in this country. Um, to get into college, you only need grades four or five or six. I don't need nine A's and I would have to work my arm off and I also would sacrifice my my you know social life and I don't really want to do that at this point in I'm 16 years old that's like the most interesting thing that there is is like what my peers are up to and so that there's already a question there about the the way that the system is set up is is, is though to squeeze every possible grade out of every possible kid as though it's an unquestioned good and I'm not sure that that is the case um but it becomes a difficult argument then <laughs> to say like we should move we should move towards a system where where it might be a little bit less efficient right it might be a little bit less efficient and some of the kids might get slightly less grades but they'll be much more resilient and much more able to to embrace the to to embrace their their life on an even keel because they will have you know learned learned while they're young how to do things for themselves instead of being mollycoddled yeah. Um, so it's it's important work that needs to be done, but I do think that it's it's going to be hard to to bring it about because everything's filtered through this metric of exam results. And I think that it's probably the case that if you if you do tons and tons of pressure from the top down, you know, that that's quite a, quite an effective way to get kids to pass tests in the short term. And that's the point in the short term. Yeah. Well, I'd like to come back to the grade marks. Uh... <laughs> Uh, fixation uh, maybe a bit later, but I have two comments on the this notion of being clear about the outcomes and including the fact that you want to build people, students who are independently able to apply their learning. Um, and so the first of these goes back to the knowledge-rich curriculum uh, points uh, previously mentioned. Clearly, there's a role for knowledge, uh, and and disciplinary knowledge has accrued over centuries, and and kids should be exposed to it and, and learn it. Um, but the question then becomes: it's not just about being able to remember and and give back knowledge, uh, disciplinary knowledge. The question should also be: what do you do when you don't know what to do? I mean, yes, you have to have knowledge to think critically and creatively, but the world is changing rapidly and we are presented and people will be presented in their lives with unpredictable situations where there is no stock answer. We don't, you can't Google it. And so this is where the fusion of these, these transdisciplinary skills of critical and creative thinking and, and habits of mind dispositions um, kick in. So that, that, that's just the point I wanted to bring up. Secondly, on the independent side of things, any school or district that claims in their mission that they are developing, quote, self-directed learners or learners who are able to navigate their own learning in the future are, are hypocritical if they don't have a system that is building that independent autonomous capacity by design. And let me suggest one very specific way in which I advocate for this, and we'll come back to this maybe later, when we talk about assessment. Um, I've argued recently that the traditional approach to curriculum mapping um, 
may be outdated and, and should be reconsidered. I can say in the US, and I think in most countries, the traditional approach to the curriculum is based on mapping out a long list of knowledge and skill objectives onto a calendar. And this is what teachers are supposed to cover in each of the grades and each of the subjects. <clears throat> but there's so much content that it's often a challenge just to try to get through it all. And that, that approach to laying out the curriculum in that way can promote a quote coverage approach to teaching and learning. We've got so much to cover. And the problem with that is if our job is to cover, then teachers can simply talk faster in class. <laughs> You'll get through it. But I would argue that's not the goal. The goal is to develop students who can think and apply their learning within and across subjects. So coverage is not the right model. So, so my alternative conception of curriculum is, what if we mapped out the curriculum within and across subjects through a series of rich performance tasks? A performance task asks students to apply their learning in realistic, authentic kinds of ways. And what if we mapped out the curriculum through a series of tasks, some would be discipline specific, many would be interdisciplinary. And if we laid out the curriculum that way and you looked at it from afar, you would see tasks that were for younger kids, simple and more scaffolded, more supported. But as you went up the grades, you would see tasks that would become more authentic, more interdisciplinary and required greater student autonomy to navigate them so that you could actually look at the tasks that kids were being prepared for and asked to do, and you could infer your mission from those. Wow, this task involves deep disciplinary knowledge plus creative thinking. This task involves kids working in teams to accomplish a realistic goal for an audience. This task puts the burden on the student to navigate their research rather than being told what to do every step of the way. And that, I think, would be a transformative conception of a curriculum assessment system with implications for what kinds of teaching and learning would prepare students to perform in those ways. Yeah. OK, thank you. On, on this, I've got a couple of quick points that I'd like to pick up on before we move on to uh, the backwards design bit and working backwards from the from this mission. The first one on, on this idea that you just mentioned of interdisciplinary knowledge, which is something that I'm really interested in and which it seems is pretty in in healthy um in a healthy state in the independent sector uh they take interdisciplinary learning pretty seriously i, I did a poll recently online and in the state sector certainly it was mainly in, in in england um there's very little it's all like just within within subject disciplines um and i was thinking about this in in terms of your sort of you were talking about two types of mission statement one of them is disciplinary and one of them is transdisciplinary where do you see interdisciplinary stuff as sitting there? Because it seems to sort of fit neither category. It seems to be sort of between something that emerges between certain disciplines rather than being across all disciplines. I wonder if that's like a third category of its own. Well, uh, let me think out loud on that, if I may. Um, I have been a fan of, quote, interdisciplinary curriculum, um, and I've seen it over the years. I've seen it done well, and I've seen it done poorly. But from a backward design point of view, uh, and by the way, at some point I should describe what I mean by backward design more specifically. But Yeah, we'll get for, into that next. Yeah, for the moment I'll say, well, let me, let me characterize it briefly, that, that we propose 
Grant Wiggins and I, that there are three stages in, quote, backward design for planning curriculum or really planning anything. Stage one is your goals or the desired outcomes. Stage two is the evidence that will show that you've achieved your outcomes or students have achieved the learning goals that you've cast. And stage three is how you get there. And that involves the, the learning experiences, the teaching, the resource materials, uh, the structure, everything else is in stage three. Mm. To me, interdisciplinary curriculum is stage three, right? It's a means to something larger. Uh, and the question okay. is, if interdisciplinary curriculum is the answer, what question is it answering? Or what goals is it working toward? And to me, it goes back to those transfer goals. We want to produce students who are able to navigate new challenges and opportunities. And when you when you unpack that in the real world, very few challenges or opportunities fall neatly within subject area silos. Authentic work, authentic challenges are inherently uh, bring together more than one discipline and bring together those transdisciplinary skills. Uh, and so rather than saying our goal is interdisciplinary curriculum, which is a means to something, my question is, what are you trying to achieve in your mission? And if you say we want students who can navigate real world challenges and authentic problems, and what are the nature of those? They're, they're, they are interdisciplinary. They bring in knowledge as well as these transdisciplinary competencies. Therefore, we need a curriculum that gives kids opportunities to tackle real world authentic problems, which by definition will be fusing disciplines and those those process skills. Got you. Thank you. And so I can see that I was I was making the same mistake that the that the that the uh, peddlers of caring, nurturing mission statements were making. That I was describing the means and not the end by focusing on the on interdisciplinary. Thank you for that. It was a very very clear answer. Um, and the other one, gone. A quick story, if I may, which may be a, a little bit egregious example, but it's it's something that I've seen a lot in the states under the heading of uh, all well-intentioned producing interdisciplinary curriculum experiences for kids, especially in the middle school um, uh, domain uh, in the states, the middle school movement, which started in the in the 80s in the U.S was deliberately trying to be more child-centered than what you typically see in high school that's more, you know, subject matter driven and promote more interdisciplinary learning and, and connection making. So all well-intentioned. In practice, what that often meant was, and by the way, I've seen this over the years in the PYP program of IB, the, the mm -hmm. primary years program. The idea was we want to promote interdisciplinary learning. And so the mechanism was often a team of teachers representing different subject areas would agree on a common theme. And then all the teachers would try to connect their subjects to the theme. Again, well-intentioned, but what I've seen over the years is often when you try to have a single theme that's going to fuse multiple disciplines, you get a lot of unnatural or, or superficial connections and my my egregious example which which is admittedly uh extreme but but nonetheless illustrative was i was working in a middle school and they they wanted to use understanding by design to support their curriculum planning 
And I was working with a middle school team of seventh grade teachers and they wanted to use UBD. And when I went to meet with them, they said, well, we want to be interdisciplinary and we, we have a theme. And I said, what's the theme? And the answer was chocolate. And I said, pardon me? And they said, no, it, it's chocolate. And it turned out that the team leader was an English teacher who, as a hobby, loved chocolate and had collected this, these chocolate memorabilia, for example, from Hershey Chocolate. And she had books about chocolate and she had models that would be used to mold chocolate bunnies. <laughs> um, and, um, and so she was directing the team as the leader. She said, well, the math teacher, you can, you can make brownies and, and chocolate candy and scale up recipes. And in English, we'll write stories about chocolate. Uh, in history, you can research the history of chocolate. And, and so this was the theme directed by the leader. Well, you know, as I would, we'd take a break from the, this meeting and, and several teachers came up to me and the math teacher said, look, we can do ratio and proportion and scaling up, but that's not in my curriculum. And the history teacher said, this is just stupid. I've got important <laughs> content to cover. And the art teacher says, I don't want to make the kids doing, you know, chocolate charcoal drawings. My, my point, though, is that with all good intentions, just selecting some arbitrary theme that's going to be the vehicle for integrating subject matter can often be uh, shallow and superficial and forced. And it's it's an abuse of time to be harsh. Yeah, it seems like it's it's just like a misconception. Like it's as though interdisciplinary learning is something that just sort of emerges out of the sum of its parts. Like the whole point is that like there are some topics that you can that you can't understand by uh, by studying just like in like individual subject disciplines like to understand something like the israel-palestine conflict or you know civil rights or the arab spring or even like covid or climate change like like you, you could like geography is important for climate change right but so is glaciology and so is um you know human geography and so is like the social justice aspects of climate change like it's not just a straightforward geography question and neither is the Arab Spring, you know, like to understand what happened there sort of in the last 20 years. You know, like so you could study like a bunch of separate subject disciplines, but you're not like that's not what interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary learning is. It's the fact that you sort of that you've got something that is of, of interest to you and you need to you need to you, know, you need to sort of create almost like a collage of, of, of the, the knowledge that you need to follow. And you sort you do that by following your nose generally, right? You sort of like start reading an article and you're like, oh, I don't know what that is. And I'm, you make a note and you think, oh, I need to look up this. And then you're going to open up some other web browser and window and you start to, to read into that. And it's like, it sort of, it, it emerges like a patchwork, doesn't it? And you like, suddenly you find that you spent a whole afternoon reading about the history of Palestine, say, like, but, th but that's not where you would start from. You'd wouldn't start by saying the history teacher is going to teach about the history of Palestine and the geography teacher is going to teach you about, you know, that part of the world. And then at the end of it, you're going to understand the Arab Spring. Like, that's just not how it works. Yeah. So think back to my my proposal for rethinking how we map out curriculum. If we map out curriculum around a set of authentic tasks that involve real problems, issues, uh, investigations, inquiries, they are going to be 
almost always naturally multidisciplinary and not forced. The examples you gave are of that sort. So that's a long way of saying, just to summarize, the goal is not an interdisciplinary curriculum. The goal is developing students who are able to navigate real world issues and problems which are inherently interdisciplinary and how do we develop their capacity to do that effectively. Got it. And, and we, we fuse knowledge with skill, uh, skills of thinking, think of skills of learning, habits of mind. Brilliant. Thank you. So, so let's move on to chapter two. <laughs> and I know that we spent a long time, <laughs> we spent a long time on chapter one, but I think that it's important to do that because if that isn't in place, like the goal, like is everything, isn't it? Cause it informs everything that follows the whole idea of backwards design. So there's two main ideas in this chapter. One of them is the, it's not so easy to say the input output impact framework, the IOI framework, and that also that, that that seems to be a sort of like a backwards design thing in itself. So so the, 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 it really helped me to understand it. There's a, there's a visual in the book. So you've got mission on the left. We've just talked about having a mission, and then t there's an arrow pointing to the right of that, which says impact. What are the out outcomes that you seek? How will you know when you've had an impact? And then to the right of that, you've got outputs. What programs and structures do you need in order to achieve these impacts? And then to the right of that, you've got inputs. What actions do you need to take and what resources will you need in order to achieve the outputs? And so you can see how the planning process goes from mission through these stages down to the actions that you need to take. And then it, it feeds back through the other, the other way. So the inputs lead to the outputs that allow you to assess the impact and that allows you to achieve your, your mission. Um, so I don't know if you've got, any, <laughs> don't know if you've got anything to, to add to that about the input-output impact framework. Um, what, what's the value in this approach, would you say? Well, there are actually two interrelated process um, ideas in our book, and you just named them. One is backward design, and that is having clarity about the end results. In this case, what kind of student do we want to produce over the years in schooling? Uh, and then we plan backward from that. And then the input-output impact model is simply a, a, a version of backward design. We use the word impact to basically describe for all of our efforts of all sorts in schools, what kind of person do we want to produce? What's the impact of our actions? We've seen over the years, Greg Curtis and I, that schools put a lot of energy into input i.e. we're having professional development for teachers on this technique, or we have curriculum teams that are meeting in the summer to revise our curriculum, um, et cetera, et cetera. Those are inputs. There are outputs of those actions. We want teachers to implement these new teaching techniques in their classrooms, or we want to launch our new science curriculum that we developed in the summer. Those are outputs. We've seen too often that educators kind of stop there, celebrate the fact that they've produced something or they've had a workshop or teachers are now using essential questions more than they used to. Um, but those actions stop short of impact. The real question is, what impact on learning are we seeing from our new science curriculum? Or what impact on learning and performance are we seeing through the use of this or these techniques that we developed in our workshops. 
So it's just a reminder, again, to keep the end in mind, to always be focused on the impact of your actions, uh, not just the actions themselves. Yeah, it's, it's very smart stuff. I really like it. And and I know that you briefly outlined um, the the backward design model, but just to recap it for listeners' benefit, um, the, a summary of each stage you've got. So firstly, identify desired results. This stage in the design process calls for clarity about long-term goals and instructional priorities. Teachers consider long-term goals based on established academic standards and related to educational outcomes, such as these sort of you know modern learning skills that we were talking about earlier that we want critical, creative, effective communicators and what have you. They also identify the big ideas that they want students to understand. And finally, they move to more specific, that sort of disciplinary um, knowledge and skills objectives. So that's the first one. You've got these really clear goals that you're working towards. Um, then the next level down, you've got assessment. Um, how, what do we need to, what assessment evidence do we need to collect in order to determine whether or not the young people have, have met these, these ends? Uh, and you make the point here that doing, doing so sharpens and focuses teaching. And I think that you can clearly see how that, how important this middle step is, that this is, this is the sort of the, the, the lens, if you like, through which the, the, that those goals come into focus, um, and then lastly, the third one is to, is to take action, to plan learning experiences and instruction. And this is where we'll come into. So the next two chapters, one's on curriculum and one's on assessment, isn't it? And so we'll go through those uh, individually. Um, and so you can see how that this, 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 um, this flows very logically in a backward step. And I really like it. I was just wonder where, like you, you said that the idea of backward design, that this was originally described by yourself and Grant Wiggins in the initial UBD book, but you, but you said that it wasn't new. What's the, to what extent are you aware of the, the history of this idea? Is there somebody who pioneered it? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Dr. Ralph Tyler, in 1949, the year of my birth, wrote a classic book on curriculum uh, when he was at the University of Chicago, and he essentially articulated backward design through three questions. What do we want students to learn? How will we know that they've learned those things? And what do we do to help them learn it? I mean, that's the essence of backward design. Since then, we've had other notables, such as um, the author of uh, Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. Oh, yeah. Who articulated that one of the habits of highly effective people is, quote, planning with the end in mind. Um, and in the, the U.S., there was a um, um, another educator uh, during the uh, outcome-based education days named uh, William Spady, who talked about design down. And, and his idea was you design backward from desired outcomes. So the, the ideas of, of, quote, backward design are absolutely not new, um, but it has proven to be an effective planning process. And, and I'll note that the most significant part and, and logic of backward design, as you noted, is in stage two. I mean, look, anybody planning anything should have goals or outcomes in mind. Otherwise, what, why, why are you doing it? So that's stage one. And by the way, there's some nuance in stage one I want to come back to. But, but too often, people jump from goals to actions. And so you hear it in teachers. You say, so what are you teaching? They'll tell you a topic rather than the outcomes for students. 
and then they'll tell you what they're going to do. Oh, I'm going to have the kids do this, or we're using this textbook, or you know, here's here's what I do on day one, day two, day three. They describe their actions. The logic of backward design says before you develop your actions, develop your lessons, choose your resources, ask the question, if these are my goals or my outcomes, what evidence will show that students have met them? Our mantra is think like an assessor before you think like a teacher. Thinking like an assessor invariably sharpens your goals if they're not clear and focuses your teaching. It's one thing to say, I want students who are able to navigate messy problems in maths or who are able to, to uh, do an inquiry on their own without being told what to do. It's another to say, what would we see as evidence that students are able to effectively navigate messy problems using sound mathematical reasoning or effectively develop a plan for inquiry? That's the assessment question in stage two. Clarity about the assessments then focuses your teaching in stage three. It's what you're gonna do in your instruction and through learning experiences, it will prepare students to do well on the assessments that will show they've met your goals. That's the essence of backward design. Yeah, I like it. And you, you said that you wanted to come back to some nuances about stage one. Yes, and so this, this is really now unpacking UBD, understanding by design. In stage one, you mentioned them, but I wanna come back and, and highlight them. In stage one, we propose that our desired results or outcomes would start with a category that, that we've called transfer goals. And we actually have a planning template and there's a place for transfer goals there. Those are derived from the mission, if the mission is well-developed. Every teacher across the grades ought to know the, the transfer goals that we've established in our mission, both within the disciplines and those that cut across disciplines, like the so-called 21st century skill type, such that when they're teaching anything, they should be able to say, as I'm working with students on this topic or these skills or this content, I am mindful of one or more of these transfer goals that are long run and I'm gonna to work toward them. Now, below that, we have two categories of understandings and essential questions. If we say we want students to be able to, to tackle messy uh, word problems or math problems they've never seen or think critically about an issue, the question then becomes, well, what understandings are students going to need to do those things well? And we actually specify um, the desired understandings appropriate to the age or the grade level of the students with whom we're working. Um, and then we, we develop companion essential questions, companion to the understandings that we would use to develop and deepen those understandings. Let me try to give you two quick examples. Um, let us start with maybe the transdisciplinary uh, transfer goal of critical thinking. If critical thinking is one of our goals, what does a student need to understand in order to begin to do that? Well, here is an understanding. A critical thinker does not merely accept everything they see, hear, or, or read. 
They ask critical questions. They question the source. They deliberately consider other points of view. That's an understanding that to me undergirds the capacity to think critically about something. What questions might we use to stimulate and develop that understanding? Essential questions such as these. How do I know what to believe in what I see, hear, and read? What is the source and is it credible? What other perspective should I consider? Those essential questions can and should be used throughout the grades. Now with young kids, you can make them more kid friendly, but you can still use them. We just read a story. Uh, do you believe what the character did or could that be true? Uh, would be an example. So this to me is where the idea of understanding by design comes to life. We're not just stating a, a, a broad goal we're unpacking it in terms of what will students need to understand in order to apply this, in order to transfer their learning. And we use essential questions to both frame the content to prioritize our teaching, but also as a vehicle for developing and engaging students in meaning making. In other words, by exploring the essential question, you are trying to make sense of and make meaning about something, and it's gonna bolster your understanding. Can I can I just pick up on this idea of transfer goals? Um, this is something that I wrestled with a lot in my own research, um, which was about a learning to learn curriculum. Um, and what we found was that um, like transfer is a slippery beast, and it doesn't happen automatically. Like even so, the, so the, and there's a vast literature on transfer. There's so-called near transfer and far transfer. Near transfer being transfer between two tasks that are at least sort of superficially similar, and and far transfer or sometimes deep. It's referred to as deep transfer. This idea that like things that are things that are like connected on a deeper conceptual level, but which might not look the same. At face value sort of thing um, and that's obviously harder to achieve and um, and so it's yeah the, 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 there are lots of people who aren't particularly persuaded that transfer is even possible that it's just like that, that it doesn't really certainly doesn't happen automatically and we, we found that that it doesn't happen automatically for example if you you know, you're teaching just on a mundane level, you're teaching kids how to cooperate effectively in a group. And in the learning to learn classroom, they're doing that really well. And then they go to PE and they're just fighting over the resources, you know, like it hasn't transferred elsewhere in the school. Um, what's your reading of the, the research on transfer? What do you think that the sort of the overall picture says? And also, um, what have you seen in practice that might actually be a bit more illuminating? Um, I have four thoughts, uh, and and you you nailed the research, uh, James, and your own research on the learning to learn and skills is is extraordinary and and relevant uh, in this discussion. I'd say so. Thought number one is uh, yes, you're right. You can think of transfer along a continuum, and near to far is a good way of casting the endpoints. Near transfer would be as straightforward as in maths you're working with, with students on arithmetic procedures and you're using uh, marbles and, and you're looking at subtraction or addition of marbles. And then you say, okay, now let's think about if we were working with apples, you know, does a student recognize that the arithmetic procedure that we worked on with marbles applies to apples? That's a very near transfer. Um, and a far transfer would be 
applying some mathematical procedure to a very new and different context. Um, but let's go back to the, the notion of transfer goals for modern world. Isn't that what we want? We're, we're not teaching kids to, let's take writing, we're not teaching kids to scribe an illustrated manual or to, to be able to copy something that someone else has written. We're, we're expecting them to be able to communicate in writing for different audiences and purposes. That's inherently a transfer goal. So I, my first point is that, to me, transfer goals should describe what we want students to be able to do on their own uh, when confronted with new situations. That's different than just giving back information that you have been told. You have to use knowledge to transfer, but transfer is more than just knowledge, to the point you made earlier. Um, my second point is that if we believe that transfer is important, and learning to learn skills that you've worked on are clear examples of that, then we have to, by design, deliberately develop those capacities. And we need to do it systematically. My observation is that transfer is, has not always been identified as an important goal, and therefore it hasn't been an, an instructional emphasis. Mm -hmm. So the fact that people don't, that students don't do it very well, may not be simply the fact that it that it can't be done, maybe it's simply revealing that we haven't worked on it sufficiently. Um, and so my argument is, is we should be deliberately working toward transfer. We should tell the kids that this is a goal and, and we're going to give them opportunities to try their um, to try to apply their learning initially in near term settings, but increasingly farther out uh, along the continuum. Thirdly, I would argue that the metrics used to decide whether transfer has occurred may not be the proper or the most robust. I just, I just worry that too often educational research is grounded by results on standardized tests and that those metrics aren't sensitive, sufficiently sensitive to whether students can in fact transfer their learning. Yeah, And so if, if your metric is impoverished, your conclusions may be inaccurate or, or incomplete. Um, and finally, I, I guess I would say if, if transfer is our goal, among our goals, which I believe is at the essence of a modern education and should be at the core of our educational missions, then we need to construct opportunities for students to learn, practice, and assess their ability to transfer and do it very systematically um, across the grades. And I don't think we're doing that now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, one small way in which we, we made a move in this direction was to introduce this idea of transfer plenaries. So we would often stop what the kids were doing in learning to learn uh, lessons and then say, how does what we're doing today relate to how you learn in French or art or PE, say. And we wouldn't have a clue about what those links might be, but the kids were really good at coming up with them. You know, they might say, oh, it means, you know, it, we really have to plan ahead or it's important to share resources or like to categorize things or to look something up when you don't know what it is or whatever it might be. Like they were able to make those connections and they were able to see that even though the, the school day looks very different if you ever do that thing where you where you follow a student for a day and it's bewildering to do like an hour of music then p then physics <laughs> then math then french or whatever it might be um 
But actually, underpinning all of those superficially different, you know, it's a, in some sense there's a there's a, a a deep transfer problem that students face every day, which is like, how can I learn in such like such di- such a diverse bunch of, of subjects? But actually, the the fundamental processes of of learning, where teachers are modeling stuff and explaining it, and the kids are practicing it, and they're getting feedback that they respond to. Fundamentally, they're doing the same stuff in all of these different contexts, and things like transfer plenaries just help help the students to make links between what they're doing across these different disciplines it's definitely not the only thing that needs to happen with regard to this but i did used to find that it it was quite useful yeah no absolutely james and and your work is is laudable in in what you've done in your research and the practical applications of it and i would i would echo that and and add one other point which i i know you also subscribe to uh, and the first one is what you described to me is a very powerful process of, I might call it metacognitive processing, where you're stopping asking the students to think about and be explicit about connections that they see, strategies that they're using, um, and making those overt. I like to say, by doing that, you're making the invisible visible, you're making it more conscious, and that, by the way, is what's needed for transfer, a consciousness that there are processes, tools, tactics, strategies that I can use uh, to, to navigate new things and to, to build on previous learning. The second uh, part uh, that, that I've been a longtime advocate for is actually working with students to construct what I might call um, uh, mental tools or, or strategic tools. So for example, let, let's take critical thinking again, and we could do the same for, for self-directed uh, learning, learning to learn. Um, you mentioned, and I agree, that with something like critical thinking, there are some generic elements that underpin the ability to think critically, even though there's absolutely a knowledge base that has to be in the mix. But f- for, for me, transfer would be to uncover those underpinning skills and processes. And then let's form a set of tools with students. So for example, you might have a set of critical thinking cueing questions, like ones I mentioned before. Uh, What's the source? Might it be biased? Is it accurate? Is it complete? What other perspectives should I consider? These are metacognitive questions that a critical thinker can and should apply to any situation that involves critical thinking. And we can and should make those explicit. I mean, I've, I've been a fan of making those with students, co-creating uh, those, those kinds of tools and putting them up as posters. Here are a set of metacognitive questions for critical thinking. And I know you and, and your, your colleague Kate have done similar things with learning to learn skills. So again, we're taking what's invisible, what's metacognitive, what could easily be overlooked if we're trying to cover lots of content, we don't have time for this, and we're gonna take time to bring it to the surface and to put it into tangible forms that kids uh, can use. And over time, the goal is that this embeds in their mind. So when they're on their own looking at a new issue, they're thinking about those critical thinking questions that were on the poster or on the bookmark. Yeah, and and we have to believe, don't we, <laughs> that it's that it's that, that transfer um, is doable and at scale, and that and that if we 
if we um, make it much more of an explicit thing, if we can think about how to assess for transfer goals, um, then it's going to be much more in the minds of teachers and students as they're as they're beavering away from day to day. That you know, I mean, surely, I mean, there's no point to to schools at all, is there? If none of this stuff is transferring across to other parts of their life, then there's literally no point. Like we we have yeah, to believe that we have to believe it. But I think that we could make a much better fist of the transfer issue than we have done in the past. Yeah, and I think I think your your work and your research is notable because. I remember reading in your book, and, and I've seen this, there were skeptics that said, oh, this learning to learn stuff is nonsense. It doesn't transfer. Let's, we don't have time to, to waste on this. Mm. Is you know, the more extreme objectives, objections. And you proved otherwise, but you did it over time in a systematic way, uh, and you collected evidence. And my, my contention is if we did the same thing for other transfer type of goals, we would be able to see and, and make progress as opposed to saying the research says it doesn't work. So, so let's not even try. Yeah. And to turn it around, like um, that's the big weakness, I think, in the traditional approach to education of just having it as subject disciplines, which is that there is an assumption that just teaching young people in a, in a, in a diet of learning that is certainly in this country ex exclusively uh, subject discipline based that somehow this is going to transfer into other contexts but the mechanism of transfer is entirely unclear and I think that that's a big hole in the traditionalist um, view so, so so let's take another few steps back and we'll pick up the pace a little bit here because <laughs> we, we there's loads more that I want to talk to you about um, so let's go firstly curriculum for modern learning then assessment and then instruction um, and I just wonder if you could just pick out just to sort of the so, some key points. So, so on curriculum, first of all, it says in the little chapter summary at the start, it says that the curriculum you propose emphasizes the development of conceptual understandings and these capabilities to transfer um, and that you have a blueprint which illustrates how to integrate uh, transdisciplinary 21st century skills with disciplinary content. So what does that look like? And if you were to walk into a school or if you were to look at a curriculum map, how does how do you achieve this blend of disciplinary and transdisciplinary uh, content? Yeah, so uh, let me answer that at the macro level, not the individual teacher level now. This is a system level. We start by identifying a small number, highlight small number of long-term transfer goals. Some are within disciplines and some cut across disciplines like the ones we've mentioned. We start there. That's a system goal, and they're not too many, but they're clear, they're performance-based, and they can be assessed, broadly speaking. Underneath that, we identify specifically what are the understandings that students will need to be able to transfer their learning within disciplines, and what understandings undergird those trans or cross-disciplinary uh, competencies. So we identify a set of understandings and we build associated essential questions. Let me just give a couple more examples. Since I've talked about maths, what do effective problem solvers do when they're stuck? That to me is an important essential question for mathematics and other domains. Yeah. And you can use this with young kids all the way up to kids in advanced uh, calculus classes. That's an essential question that spirals through the curriculum. 
and should. Um, so that's at the macro level, a small number of long-term transfer goals and associated understandings and essential questions that will be used to develop and deepen over the grades. Stage two, what evidence will show that students understand and can apply their learning transfer? Uh, and then what evidence will show that students are also acquiring the more specific and discrete knowledge and skills that are needed? Because knowledge and skills are, of course, in the mix. So in understanding by design, we have those two broadly cast types of assessments. The first type, how do we know that students understand and can transfer or apply their learning? To me, are best assessed through authentic performance type tasks and projects where students are presented with challenges and opportunities and we see what they can do. More specifically, a performance task to me has to have at least two elements. The task involves some application to something new. It could be a near-term trans uh, transfer application or it could be farther, but the students have to apply their learning to some situation. And secondly, they have to be able to explain what they've done. It's the twin processes of application and explanation that will give us the evidence to, to, to determine the degree to which students understand and can in fact transfer their learning. Grant Wiggins and I like to use a judicial analogy. The students should be considered innocent of understanding until convicted. <laughs> the question is, what evidence will convict them? The ability to remember things on a fact test does not ensure understanding or doesn't show that you can apply your learning. It simply says you know stuff. A performance task involving application, some transfer and explanation, if done well, will give us evidence that will convict the student of understanding. And so is, is that how you operate? Is, is transfer how you operationalize the difference between knowledge and understanding? that understanding is knowledge that transfers. Yeah, I would I would say I would agree with that and, and say it in another way also. And this is where assessment thinking is so important. If I want to see if a student knows something, then objective tests, questions and quizzes will determine that. Because if you think about it, knowledge is binary, right? You know it or you don't. Mm. So we use multiple choice, fill in the blank, give me the answer to determine knowledge. Understanding and transfer are more a matter of degree. So you can say the student has a beginning understanding, but it's not sophisticated. Yeah. Or the student's demonstrated an in-depth understanding, and here's the evidence. Um, similarly with transfer, the student can do a near transfer, you know, operation, but but they can't extend it versus this student has really shown that they've taken these concepts or this process and applied it in a totally new di direction. Th this is far transfer and we seek it, we can see evidence of it. So that's the distinction that the assessment, what's appropriate assessment is revealing of the nature of your goals. If it can be assessed effectively with an objective test and there's a right or wrong answer, it's probably more in the knowledge realm. Okay, so let's let's get into the assessment in a little bit more depth here. So, like, and I want to come back to this question of authentic assessment, which I know you've done a lot of work around. Firstly, I just shared the little chapter summary for listeners on the assessment system. It says, and it's an excellent point, that too often 
21st century skills or things like them, the stuff that we were describing earlier, um, fall through the cracks of conventional testing of academic content. Indeed, one of the most frequently missing elements of schools' reform efforts is to have a rich and comprehensive assessment system that captures evidence of modern learning and not simply this shallow level of content acquisition that you were just talking about. You say that in this chapter you show a process for joining one or more transdisciplinary outcomes together to ensure that everything that we proclaim to value is appropriately assessed. And so, this, like I said before, I'm increasingly thinking that this is the most important thing because we treasure what we measure, don't we, in schools? That's right. And and uh, and if we are measuring the wrong things, then we're going to be focusing and treasuring the wrong things. So let's talk about authentic assessment. What does that mean to you, and what does what does it look like in practice? And and what's it? What is inauthentic assessment? Yeah, great great questions. First of all, keep in mind backward design. The goal is not authentic assessment. The goal is evidence of our goals in stage one. But if our goals include transfer, then we need evidence that students can transfer their learning. Yeah. And why do we want them to transfer? So they can navigate real world issues and challenges, right? So one, to me, there are two connotations for the term authentic, and I'll play it out in terms of what it means for assessment. The most common connotation of authenticity, I think, in our profession is, are we asking students to do things that reflect what people outside of school do with their knowledge and skills? So it's authentic to real world applications. So that's one element of authenticity, which I celebrate. In other words, I think our assessments as well as our learning experiences should present students with real world opportunities and challenges and issues and communications um, and let them try to apply their learning to navigate those. They reflect real world application, in other words. Now, we can think of authenticity in that sense, once again, along a continuum. You can have truly an authentic task. For instance, the students are uh, appealing to the local board of education or the city council to change a policy and they're making a persuasive case in writing or in an oral presentation. If they really did that, that would truly be authentic. But then we could have a simulated authenticity. Imagine that you're trying to persuade the city council to enact this. You're not actually going to go there and make a case, Mm. but you're going to prepare as if you were. So we're simulating authenticity, even though you're not really doing it. And that's different than what I would say is an inauthentic task or inauthentic assessment, which might be, um, here's an issue, here are four alternatives, check the one you think is best. (laughs) That to me is not authentic. The world doesn't present you with three or four options to solve problems. That's That's not to say there's anything wrong with selected response type assessments. They're very good for some things. They're just not authentic. Nobody outside of school does those things. Right. Now, the second dimension of authenticity, though, is different and and nonetheless important. Is the task that we're giving students not only authentic to the real world, quote, but authentic to their interests and their experience? Because the two connotations of authenticity aren't always conjoined. Um, I can give you a quick example if if you wish. Yeah, please do. 
So um, I worked with some mathematics teachers on designing, quote, authentic assessments. And one, I think it was eighth grade or so, the, the students were presented with the following. They were given the uh, blueprint uh, and the specs for a basement in a home that was unfinished. And the task was, you're, a, you're an advisor to a homeowner who wants to finish the basement and make it into a rec room. And you've gotten a proposal from a contractor and your job is to evaluate the proposal and advise the, the homeowner if this is a good deal. And so the, the, the students are given the blueprint or the specs of the area. Uh, and then they're given, in particular, the contractor is putting up drywall or sheetrock, you know, the, wall, the walls. And there's information given on the cost of two different sizes of drywall, the cost for the associated materials like the, the glue and the spacking tape and the nails. And then there's a, a amount of hours and a labor cost and a profit margin. And so the students have to navigate all these variables to evaluate the proposal that the contractor has given to the homeowner and say, is this a good deal or not? So it's, it's rich mathematically, and it truly is authentic. I mean, people do this in the world. The problem when the teachers gave it to the students was the kids didn't know what drywall was, <laughs> number one. And when they found out, most of them didn't give a you-know-what. <laughs> and so while it was rich and authentic mathematically, it didn't engage most students, to, except for the compliant ones. Yeah. The teachers, realizing that when they gave it, changed it the next year to design your dream bedroom or your man cave. And it involved the same mathematics, but it became much more interesting to kids. They were still working with volume, surface area, material cost. So that's a long way of saying as much as possible, and it's not always, but as much as possible, we want to create tests that are authentic in both senses, that engage students in real world application within and across disciplines, but also resonate with their interests and experiences as much as possible. And I have, if there's time, I, I have some more specific mechanisms for how we might do that. But that's another uh, long, longer answer. Hello listeners, a quick bit of Rethinking Education news if I may. Later this year we are hosting the inaugural Rethinking Education conference, which I hope will be the first of many. We have some super exciting keynote speakers lined up, more details to follow soon, as well as lots of brilliant talks and workshops and circle time sessions and debates and all sorts. Speaker applications are now open, so if you'd like to apply to do a talk or to run a workshop, get your thinking hat on and follow the link in the show notes. This conference will be in London on Saturday the 17th of September 2022, but if you're in a far-flung corner of the world, you don't get off the hook that easily, I'm afraid, because there will also be an online element to the conference and we are accepting video presentations. If you don't want to do a talk but you just want to come along, we're running a 20% discount for Friends of the Podcast for a limited time only. Just enter the promo code REPOD20, that's R-E-P-O-D, all lowercase, 20. Secondly, if you enjoy these conversations as much as I do and you would like to express your gratitude, you can now become a patron of the podcast should you feel so inclined. I received a lovely email from one of our patrons the other day, B. Stevenson, hi B, who wrote, thank you so much for sending the PDF of Fear is the Mind Killer and also for the transcripts in Otter, which is the transcription service, brilliantly useful. 
I've been meaning to email for a long time to let you know how much I'm enjoying your conversations on the podcast and how they're supporting my thinking slash grappling slash confusion slash occasional light bulb moments. There are various benefits associated with being a patron, including, as B mentioned, a searchable written and audio transcripts of every episode to date, apart from a couple which I've somehow lost. A copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn, I co-authored with Kate McAllister. And at the highest tier, you can access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on metacognition, self-regulation, oracy, and self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home, whatever floats your boat, or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D again. Alternatively, if you'd like to buy me a one-off pint, a coffee, or perhaps even a pint of coffee, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, there are links in the show notes. Finally, if you haven't yet joined the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the 500-strong community that's grown up around this podcast, please do consider joining us. When you join, you have to give a reason as a way to filter out the bots. One person who joined this week wrote... I've been listening to the podcast and have found the discussions so enlivening and inspiring. I wish I'd been privy to these discussions earlier in my career, as it was a dearth of ideas and innovation that has led to my current career break. So that's nice, isn't it? And also quite interesting. The Rethinking Education Mighty Network is a really lovely, truly international community where you can meet like-minded people from all walks of life as we think through how we might change the way we educate young people in the way that Jay describes in this conversation. Indeed, Jay is soon going to join one of our monthly Zoom calls to help us do just that. Speaking of whom, let's now get back to our conversation with Jay McTighe. Okay, so 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 let's take a step back again now to instruction, um, and in particular this uh, the this AMT framework acquisition meaning making transfer. So you can see how this transfer thread has been is weaving all the way back down to the level of you know we're almost at the level of lesson planning here. Um, so how how do we how do we go about aligning instruction resources and various classroom tools with these goals that we've that we've been working backwards from? Yeah, great question. So Grant Wiggins and I, broadly speaking, have described three broad categories of learning goals. There are acquisition goals, uh, namely what knowledge and skills should students acquire. And this is where a typical curriculum specifies in great detail what knowledge and skills should be acquired. Mm. And then and the knowledge-based curriculum advocates live in that world. But they're also the goals of understanding. Um, and I hope viewers or listeners would, would recognize the distinction. A student may know something as in the ability to remember it or give it back, but that doesn't mean they understand it deeply and can apply it. And so understanding is around larger conceptual ideas and processes. Mm-hmm. When we talk about big ideas, it's what are most worth understanding and what are those at the heart of the disciplines if you're a disciplinary uh, teacher. And then thirdly, we have transfer, which is the ability to apply your learning to new situations. We believe that all three goals are important. No one's saying we don't care about knowledge or skills. They're foundational. Of course we do. 
But just learning a bunch of stuff for acquisition doesn't ensure understanding or transfer. So we need all three goals. What this translates to for instruction, in my view, is a different role for both teachers and students as we pursue these, these goal types, right? If I want to develop knowledge, we know how to do that. Teachers can present information, kids can read it in books, kids can view it online, and there are study skills that will help them remember factual knowledge. We know how to teach skills, including very basic skills. The whole skill teaching model of, you know, of present the skill, model it, um, allow students to try it in simple ways, give feedback, and increasingly move toward independent practice and spaced repetition is a skill teaching model. Mm -hmm. In both cases, teachers are more prominent. Direct instruction is appropriate as you're building knowledge and skill acquisition. Right. When we shift to understanding, I believe the teacher's role shifts and the student role shifts. We use the phrase meaning making to, to try to make this point. Grant Wiggins and I like to say understanding must be earned. It must be earned by the learner. It occurs in the mind of the learner. Therefore, the teacher's role when teaching for understanding is not just telling or directly modeling, but engaging students in thinking about things, presenting essential questions, letting them try to apply their learning to something new, have them consider different points of view, playing devil's advocate. In other words, the teacher shifts more toward a facilitator of meaning making, of engaging students in thinking, of application, of reflecting on their learning, um, and that those are the, the instructional modes, the pedagogies of building and deepening understanding. When transfer is our ultimate goal, which I contend it should be, I think the teacher's role shifts even more to more like a coach. As a coach, the teacher is giving students opportunities to apply their learning, initially to near-term applications, transfer, but over time to more complex and far-term. And the, the, the teacher as coach is primarily a feedback giver. And this is the role of formative ongoing assessments. Mm. And so that's a long way of saying to summarize, we have these three goal types. They're interrelated, but they're not identical. Clarity about the goal types impacts how we teach, the role of the teacher, and what the students are doing. And we need all three types in a modern education. I absolutely love what you just said. That's amazing. So, so moving from acquisition through meaning making to transfer. And the, I love the way that you describe how the role of the teacher changes because we still have this tedious back and forth about, you know, should the teacher be the guide on the side or the sage on the stage, as it's sometimes characterized, you know, uh, direct instruction versus like a more facilitative approach or a teacher led approach versus a child led approach. And you can see here how that's a continuum, <laughs> a little bit like we sometimes think of like coaching and mentoring, like sometimes a teacher needs to be coached, but sometimes they just need to be told where the where the photocopier is, right? Like they just need to be told stuff. Um, and I love this idea that the teacher is sort of moving along this continuum based on the position that the student is at with regard to a particular subject or a particular unit that they're working through, say, where at first it's much more instructional while they're developing those, those knowledge and skills, and then it becomes more like um, what you said it was facilitative and then it moves into a coaching mode 
uh, when you get to the level of transfer. That just seems to me to be such a an important and insightful sort of way to resolve that interminable conversation about like should the teacher be centre stage or should they be on the side clearly it's both at different points in the process and this AMT model acquisition meaning making transfer explains exactly how that should play out at different points along the along that that continuum yeah so thank you for that I, I absolutely love what you just said let me, if I may, let me let me make two quick related points. One example and one very practical suggestion. As an example, think about coaching athletics, and we'll take soccer or football in your world. Um, so think about the goal of coaching. I would argue, or do argue, that the goal is is preparing the players for transfer. Right, every game is a transfer task. Every game is different, and the players have to take everything they've learned in practice and apply it on the field in, and, and adapt to changing circumstances, right? Yeah. If the game is the transfer task for soccer or football, then think like a coach and plan backward. What does the coach do in practice, which is where the lessons uh, would be the equivalent? The coach is developing the knowledge. The players have to know the rules or they're not going to be effective. They have to develop the skills, both individual and team skills, and a lot of practice time is working on those skills. But there are also conceptual understandings in the game, um, otherwise known as as strategy. Um, And so think about young kids first coming out to learn football. They have to learn the rules. They have a lot of practice on the skills, but there are also strategies such as create space on offense, and collapse space on defense. That's a conceptual understanding that's important in in team sports. Now, when you watch little kids first coming out to play, what do you see them doing? They're running around the ball. They're bunched together, right? And the coach is saying, no, spread out, get away, create space. That's a conceptual understanding. Um, And so, those are the those are the three goal types. There's knowledge, there's skills, and there's conceptual understanding. But it's all directed toward preparing students to transfer all that into the game. Yeah. So that's point one. Point two to the teaching part. There's a direct. I mean, the coaches are direct instructors and modelers, right? Especially with younger kids. You go to practice and you see them saying, "Oh, not get your foot this way," or "Lead, lead your runner when you pass." all kinds of direct instruction and modeling. But eventually, the goal of the coach is to work themselves out of the picture so that the players understand and can execute on their own. They they are facilitating transfer. And the essence of coaching, by the way, in practice is formative assessment and feedback, right? Run that play again. All right, try it this way. Formative assessment and feedback is the root to transfer performance by the team independently on the field. So use the coaching model as the teaching model if transfer is your goal, if understanding is a part of learning, not just knowledge and skill acquisition. Last point on this little riff. When people sometimes say to me, yeah, those transfer goals, they're they're way too advanced. We're just working with primary grade children. They can't do that. Well, the soccer coach doesn't say oh, the five-year-olds can't play the game because they don't know the rules yet or they don't have the skills. 
No, they let the five-year-olds play the game, and then they come off and say, All right, we're going to work on something called the offside rules rule, or I'm going to teach you how to be a better passer, and we're going to work on that. In other words, it's the game, it's authentic performance that is the context for learning the skills, learning the knowledge, developing the conceptual understandings. So use this, use what we know about coaching as our model. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's such a pleasure to hear you talking about this. The clarity of your thinking is is absolutely phenomenal, um, and that that coaching model and the sporting the sporting analogy just works on on so many levels. And 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 there's in, increasingly a scientific mandate for working in this way. You know, did you get the chance to listen to the episode with Mary Helen? I did, and I absolutely loved it. And I, I actually had a couple of thoughts, but. Um... But absolutely, I did, and and I, I will comment on that in a moment. Okay. Permit me just to to uh, come back though to my my practical point, and I can make this quickly. Okay. If we actually encourage teachers to code their lessons, both their teaching and the learning activities that kids do in the lessons, using the acronym or using the letters A M T, and here's the idea. For a given lesson or learning activity, is the primary goal for students to acquire knowledge or basic skills? If so, code that A. Is the basic goal of this learning activity to develop and engage student meaning making and coming to understand larger ideas and processes? If so, code, code that as M. And is the primary purpose of this learning activity or my teaching to prepare students for transfer? If so, code that T. Now, I don't want to be tied into categorical sclerosis and start arguing about, is that activity A or M? (laughs) Because many activities will be both. You can engage students in meaning-making activities that will, in fact, help them remember things factually. But, But it is nonetheless the case that if you code your lessons in terms of the purpose and their goals, A, M, or T, you can quickly get a sense of your, not only your instructional methodology, but the goals toward which you are trying to, the goals you're trying to achieve. If I visit a classroom and I code the entire lesson as A, 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 my assumption is this is fairly early on in a new learning episode and you're you're preparing students with some foundational knowledge and skills. But if I came back three weeks later and saw A, 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 and everything in between was that, my conclusion is, well, you're covering a lot of content, but I don't see any examples of kids really delving in to make meaning, demonstrating understanding, or preparing for transfer. And if your goal is knowledge acquisition, then A, 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 A is right on. <laughs> but if you claim that you're trying to develop understanding and transfer, I want to see some M&T in the mix. This is it. And, and, and I do think that there are some teachers and some schools and some um, people who, outside of the system, even parents and carers, who, who think that A, 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 A is, is what it's all about and they have an acquisitive um, model in their minds and I think that that should be allowed to continue if they want to plough that field but I really think that there should be at least be one or two schools in every locality that is doing the M and the T 
in you know in equal proportion so that we can get a, you know so it's because it's clear that the AAAA model doesn't work for for many young children there are many kids there are so, like, there are so many problems <laughs> that we see um in the school system in society among young people in general the the the, the fact that a third of young people leave school having been branded a failure you know that, that there's there's widespread mental health problems and when we talk to 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 young people they often say that school is a part of the problem there because they they feel that there's this lack of agency a lack of meaning a lack of autonomy and so like the the the, the shadow side if you like of schooling that that is sort of seeps through in the background of this conversation if you like because when we're talking about meaning making as something that we should be doing the opposite of that is a world in which the young people are not able to to, to you know exactly. able to to make meaning out of their lives or out of the, the the learning that they're engaging in which makes it meaningless right like by definition and that's not okay um and so so let, let's just quickly touch on this you said you had a couple of thoughts on the episode with Mary Helen Imodino Yang and and her account I, I called that that episode the neurobiological case for progressive education because I do think that her research and the research of other people in that field looking at the importance of emotions and sociality and culture uh, in learning that this is not just some cognitive frontal lobes exercise um, and, that, and that when you look at the brain science then that leads you to, to believe that we need to build in many more opportunities for students to have agency over their learning to have choice because that goes a long way towards you know allowing them to make meaning um and to and also like authentic real world um assessments the stuff that you were talking about so i i'm seeing that there's a that there's a scientific mandate for this but i'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that on that episode yes um first of all i love the episode and recommend it to all of your listeners um i um have a, a close friend and colleague named dr judy willis with whom I wrote a book, and Judy Willis is a neurologist, and after 20 years of neurology practice, she took a leave of absence, went back to school, got a master's in education, and became a teacher, and taught grade two, five, and seven for 10 years. Um, and it's an unusual and very interesting career uh, diversion, mm. and, and she now writes about and talks about, with authority, the the, the neurosciences and teaching. And I like to say she, she's earned her right to talk to teachers because she spent 10 years in classrooms. Um, but she has the, the, the background of a science and medical person as a physician. But, but let me summarize my reaction to my work with Judy and to uh, Mary Helen's wonderful podcast that, that you um, provide. There's a construct that actually is not new it's been around for a while, but it, it resonates very well with the neurobiology. And it, it's under the heading, what are the factors that influence students' willingness to put forth effort in school or in learning situations? And broadly speaking, there are two categories under this heading. One is climate factors, and the other are task factors. So let me try to summarize this briefly. Under climate factors, we know at a very basic level that comfort, one's comfort in a learning situation matters. If it's too hot, too cold, you've been sitting too long, or you're, you're hungry, you're not gonna be an optimal, optimal learner. That's pretty Maslowian, <laughs> low level. Yeah. But there's also comfort in, so that's physical comfort. There's also 
comfort in the sense of safety. And this has at least two manifestations, right? Students who are in um, maybe inner city situations or in neighborhoods that aren't safe and who literally worry about being accosted on the way to school or being beaten up in the, in the, in the lavatory or shaken down for their lunch money or they're gonna, someone's gonna steal their jacket or they're gonna get in a fight on the playground. The brain goes to those worries and it's gonna be in more of the fight, flight, freeze realm. It's not gonna be able to, to process higher level uh, cognitive things. Um, and so obviously the importance of safe schools and safe classrooms is, is inordinate and important. But there's also psychological safety. And this is maybe more subtle, but I think operative for many kids. In a classroom, if a student is either is, feels that the teacher either doesn't like them or doesn't believe they're capable, they may be less likely to put forth maximum effort. Emotionally, that's going to, to trigger stress. Similarly, if a student, uh, if nobody wants them in their cooperative group or no one will sit with them at lunch or they're bullied, um, psychologically, they're gonna fixate and focus on on those challenges and, and not be able to marshal uh, optimum mental energy for learning new material. So, so that's kind of basic, you know, the idea of, of physical and psychological safety and a comfortable accepting cooperative climate we know is important. So those are, those are climate variables. But let's go to task variables, which is more germane, I think, to our conversation beyond the safety stuff. There are three categories of, of task variables that impact arguably students' willingness to put forth effort uh, and so forth. One of these is task clarity. And there's been a good amount of research on the importance of task clarity, both for teachers and students. Fundamentally, do students know what's expected, what the goals are, and how their work will be judged? When a person is unclear about the goals, it's hard for them to marshal their, their optimum energy to work toward them. In UBD, part of the goal of understanding by design is to make the goals crystal clear, first to the teacher and then to the students. We're working toward long-term transfer goals. We wanna build and develop your understandings. We're gonna explore these essential questions and they're posted on the wall in the room, so it's crystal clear. And the knowledge and skill objectives are the means to the end, just like in athletics. We're doing these drills to prepare you for the game. So task clarity is important. And I would argue that not only the goals, but the assessments need to be known by kids. In three weeks, you're gonna have a chance to design your dream bedroom <laughs> or, or man cave, and you're gonna have to provide the specs and we're gonna do the cost estimates as an example. Without task clarity, students are not likely to put forth maximum effort. The second factor has to do with the student's perceptive perception of purpose or relevance. Is this worth learning? Does this matter to me? That's where the two elements of authenticity that I mentioned, real world and relevant to student interest and experience come into play. So if we can cast learning around authentic tasks that reflect both real world application and allow voice and choice to some extent for students, so it reflects their strengths, their interests, their experiences, we're gonna have more buy-in. 
you don't hear kids saying, why do we have to learn this? Or whoever, whoever uses this, when you've built your learning around authentic tasks in those senses. And the third and final dimension that needs to be considered is, in addition to goal clarity and the student's perception of relevance or purpose, is the student's perception of their ability to at least be moder moderately successful in those goals toward those ends uh, to those tasks. If a student believes that the goals might be worthy and relevant, but it's way beyond their capacity to be successful, that induces stress and this fight, flight, freeze responses of the brain are likely to emerge. This highlights to me, James, the importance of differentiating tasks, of providing scaffolded support for students by making it clear that the, the challenge is real, the goal is authentic, it may be beyond your capacity right now, but we're gonna help you get there. We're gonna give you a lot of feedback, we're gonna give you voice and choice, uh, we're gonna support you, because our goal is not a bell-shaped curve of achievement, which is a sort and select model. We want a J-curve. We want everybody to grow and improve, and we're gonna celebrate that. And that should be explicitly um, pro promoted in our, in our method and in, in our um, you know, relationship with students. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but that has always been a framework to me that is not new. It's, it's emerged out of cognitive psychology, but it absolutely resonates with the brain sciences um, that people like Mary Helen are, are advocating. Yeah, yeah, clearly. That was a very impressive answer. I've just written a whole page of notes as you were talking. Um, there's so much to take away from that. Um, and it's incredible. And, and at that last point you were making, it's sort of, a, it's not quite self-efficacy, but it's close to self-efficacy, isn't it? The student's perception that they can be successful. It's Because self-efficacy is almost like a belief that you can, that you are successful, isn't it? Um, but in a particular domain, but like it's like a capacity for self-efficacy. Like, do you believe that you can achieve in this? Do you see purpose and relevance? I love this idea about being really transparent with the, with the students about what it is that you're trying to achieve and the assessments. It reminds me of a, of a thing um, that we did in the learning skills curriculum where um, I, I noticed as a, as a subject teacher, as a science teacher, that often, you know, you, we would say, oh, like, have a chat with your, with your table partner about such and such, off you go. And often the conversations, some kids would be able to talk at length, but some, some of them, the conversations would just stall quite quickly. And then I started talking to the students and I'd say, what, what happens when you're asked to, to speak with your table partner? Like, how does that go generally? And sometimes they say things like, it's actually quite hard to have a conversation with like, somebody that you've just been putting a seating plan next to. Like, maybe you've never spoken to them before, so there's no like rapport. Maybe there's, right. there are sort of like invisible, you know, like there's sort of, we sometimes call it the micro politics of the classroom, like the invisible like, dynamics that exist between students that the teacher is often not particularly savvy to, especially at secondary school, where they teach, you know, 200 kids. At primary school, the, the teachers, you know, know them much better. Um, but it might be that there's like a popularity gradient, right? So like kid A is perceived to be very popular and kid B is not. And they, so that, it's, that, that, there's, that's, that makes that conversation really hard. Or it might be that one of them used to bully the other one, or maybe they privately sort of admire the other one, right? There, there could be a whole range of reasons as to why that conversation won't go well. 
And so we would start at the start for the first half term, for the first six weeks, we allowed the students to sit in a pair of their choosing mm-hmm. with somebody that they were able to, 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 to work well with. And if, you know, we would keep an eye on that, obviously. And if, if they weren't able to, if they were just like being, being silly together, then obviously we would bear that in mind. But it had to be somebody that they felt comfortable with. And we would teach them that the, the, the focus that year was about um, teaching them ground rules to, to engage in exploratory talk, or sometimes it's called accountable talk in the states mm-hmm. talk where people give reasons for their thinking everybody takes turns uh, they build on other people's ideas they work towards agreement and so on it's like it's like the golden the golden um land of, of the, the idealized talk if you like um and and then in the, in the second half term we would give them we would introduce a third person into the into the mix and that already complicates things quite a lot because in a pair you've only got a b right it's just one relationship in a three you've got three relationships a b a c and b c so it's a, a three is three times more complicated than a two um, and so already the feathers start to fly and it start, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a much harder thing to navigate a conversation with three people than two. But they would get good at that and we would spend six weeks on that. And then in the third half term, you can probably predict we would introduce a fourth person. And now there are six relationships if you count out the permutations. And that's way more complicated even than, than a three. And then in the second half of the term, we repeated that cycle, but the teachers chose this time. And explicitly throughout the year, we were making clear that like by the end of this year, you will be able to have a really high-level exploratory conversation with any kid in any group size that you find yourself in. And we're going to take you through that stage by stage. And the students really liked it. They really responded well when we, when we looked at what they wrote in their learning journals and when we interviewed them about their experiences of the program as well. They really appreciated that we were like gently but persistently nudging them and encouraging them to to leave the sort of the apparent safety of their friendship groups or the their familiar people with whom they sit in, in working lessons so that they all got to know one another and th- and it really forged very strong relationships between the class which often left to their own devices they tend to become quite cliquey they like there are some kids who go through five years they don't know the name of another kid who's, who've been in the same class with for five years because they've never ever spoken to them or had to had to to know it really um and so that it seems to me that that was a, a, an example without wanting to toot my own horn um of from, from the work that we've done where when you make those those um when you make the, the task really really transparent um the way that it was assessed was that we I, I was going around and sort of you know like it was it was only assessed formatively but i would go walk that circulate the class when they were doing these talk tasks like picking out examples and celebrating it and so that they could all see that they were moving towards some some clearly defined future um and they could see the purpose and relevance of it and they they appreciated it so i can see um i can see how how powerful this stuff is and and like i said earlier about I was, i've been going back to what we said at the start of the conversation i went off on a bit of a tangent about assessment and how you know what we're arguing for here is maybe going to be moving away from from uh, kids getting quite so many grades. But on reflection, I, I now disagree <laughs> with what I said earlier because the whole thing with this learning skills curriculum is that we did this stuff. We took out 400 lessons out of Key Stage 3, which is when the kids are aged 11 to 14, so which is no, no bite-sized intervention. That was a significant chunk of time. It's more time than they would have spent doing maths or English. 
um, and yet they performed significantly better than the control group in in uh, measures of subject learning and this was not just like some made-up measure of resilience say this was like <laughs> you know measures of subject learning and so they were able to switch on um, and in particular it brought down to confidence when we asked the kids how did how, why is it that you were able to learn more effectively in other lessons they nearly always boiled it down to confidence and it boils down to things like this this interpersonal confidence so i remember there was a one girl who talked about so i'm going on a bit about my study here um there's one girl who talked about um how she'd been putting a seating plan in maths with a kid who used to bully her in primary school and now she helps him with his maths and she totally <laughs> turned the dynamic around and now she was the powerful one right because she was like you know like reaching out to him and saying like let me help you with this sort of thing um and you can see how that like because they became confident and especially through all the work that we did on oracy and spoken language that that spills over into their other light into their other aspects of their life other lessons their friendship groups their families and they were able to sort of to become bigger versions of themselves to, to voice their needs and to communicate their their um whatever it is that their thought their thoughts or feelings were um so I, I'm I'm totally sold on this, and and it seems to me that things are coming together in a really interesting way through through the people that I'm talking to through this podcast, people like yourself and Mary Helen and others, and it sounds like I'd really like to get Judy Willis on. Do you think if you think she'd be she'd be up for it? Yeah, I would be happy to introduce you. That would be amazing. Um, yeah, and let me just say that your example, James, was brilliant and and illustrative of the points that that I'm making as well that what I heard you describe over the three years of your work on learning skill strategies, and in particular, the ability of students to communicate effectively in groups and work effectively in groups was a perfect example. You had transfer goals that were clear, but you worked very deliberately by design in a structured, scaffolded way, starting small, building on success, but increasing the authenticity, the challenge, the complexity. Uh, and you saw the results uh, both in the way in the development of the skills you were working on, but also with subject matter learning uh, was deepened. So, you know, I couldn't make a better case for, for what I've written about uh, than you just did in your work. Well, yeah, th thank you. It's, it's, it's nice to hear. So, so let's do a little bit of a thought experiment um, where we're going to try and design an ideal school. Um, unless, unless there's more stuff from learning modern, le sorry, leading modern learning that you think we need to talk about before we get to that point. I'll, I'll weave one or two other points that I would make independently into the thought experiment. So uh, let's go for it. Okay, great. Right. So imagine that we've got assembled like this, this diverse group of people and we, we start to look at, I think for, for me, the mission starts with like what what are the, what are the problems that we see that we want to fix you know and so one of them and and so at first i think that it, like when i started thinking about this i sort of thought it's a like you it, it gets framed in negative language so at the moment for example this this idea that i mentioned earlier that one third of of young people leave school in this country um, feeling like failures and having been branded as failures essentially by an, by an assessment system that fails around one third of them, um, and and so a negative way of framing it would be to say something like no child a failure, but another way to turn that is to, would be to say that every every child should leave school feeling successful and and we could def we could get into how we might def define success. Um, 
and so that you know that they're not feeling like failures and we know what the what the psychological impact of that word is when people feel like failures and actually what they often do is stop trying because if you don't if you don't really try then you don't really fail like it was just that you don't care about that thing and so yeah i had to do that test it was stupid but i didn't even try for it anyway and that's how they sort of shore up their self-esteem so so to get out of that that whole sort of horrible corner that we've somehow painted ourselves into I wanted to have this idea that every child being successful um, in some sense, in, in their own terms, I think that that would have to be, that they feel that they feel that they could point to things that, about themselves that are successful. And then it, the, my problem was that it sort of turned into a bit of a list. So I sort of had successful, I also had confident, healthy, you know, like physically and, and, and mentally healthy. Uh, self-directed is in my list as well. Um, I'm guessing that that makes for a bad mission statement, just like to have a list of attributes. What, what do you think about that so far as, a, as, an, as an early draft? Well, I'll, I'll come back to my earlier point. The mission should specify long-term transfer goals, both within disciplines and some that cut across. And so some of the ones you mentioned, I think would qualify. Something like feeling of a, a success to me is more of a, of a byproduct and and I would want to be more specific about what are the what are the transfer performances or the transfer capabilities that you want a student to to manifest, and if they can do that, they're going to have a, a feeling of success or pride or you know efficacy. Um, so so we we could I would if I were working with you, given what you your initial list, I, I would we could fine tune those into more precise what I call transfer goals. Um, but if you're asking me what what is the ideal school then, <laughs> working backward from transfer goals, I, I can be a little more specific if that's what you'd like to hear. Yeah, please. All right, so I'm gonna use the construct that we laid out in Leading Modern Learning. We start with a, long, a set of long-term transfer goals within and across disciplines. Underneath those, we would identify explicitly the kinds of understandings that would need to be developed for students to be able to transfer their learning and frame those with or by essential questions. And these essential questions would spiral through the curriculum. They provide the intellectual through lines that ensure coherence from grade to grade, year to year. And then at the grade level, you know, and in units of study, we, we would have more specific and discrete knowledge and skill objectives, right? So that's stage one of our of our school kind of curriculum. Stage two, as I've described, based on our transfer goals, we would map out a series of, I'll call them performance tasks. Some would be subject or discipline specific. Many would be interdisciplinary. Uh, they would be authentic in the two ways I mentioned, both authentic to real world, but also allowing voice and choice for students. Um, and that we would have well-developed criteria sets or rubrics to be able to gauge student performance on those tasks. And we would also have more specific and traditional assessments just to check on knowledge and skills that really are foundational and need to be learned. Um, and finally, our learning plan would be like the coaching analogy I mentioned. We would plan with the end in mind, preparing students to demonstrate their ability to transfer and perform on the tasks. And our teaching would involve both direct instruction modeling, 
um, facilitative guidance and coaching, especially with ongoing assessment and feedback. Let me now bring in one more important part in my in my uh, uh, created school. Let us think about the quote grading and reporting system, which I think has to be radically transformed. My uh, longtime friend, uh, Tom Gusky, who's written a lot about grading and reporting, um, offers what I think is the right framework for thinking about these matters. Tom proposes we need a three P model. And here are the three P's. We need to assess and report on performance. That's the first P. And performance is not just traditional tests of acquisition, but performance in the way I've described it, including authentic performance, the ability to apply your learning and explain it in authentic situations. We're gonna report on how well students are able to perform with their learning. Now, performance can also include performance on more traditional measures. So just basic skills, we do wanna assess performance on those because they're underpinnings. The second P refers to progress and that we would, we would be able to report on how well a student has grown or progressed from a starting point. So maybe it's with traditional report cards every 12 weeks or so, we're gonna say how well has James grown or how well has Jay progressed from where he started along a trajectory of learning. And the third P to make the alliteration work would refer to process factors typically um, cast as work habits. So to what extent does Jay turn in work on time, complete assignments, participate in class if that's important? The things that we know matter in school and in life, but have to be separated from the performance or achievement marks or grades. Because when we conflate those three Ps into a single grade or a single mark, the meaning of the grade is compromised. And, and I can tell you from my experience over the years, particularly in the US where at secondary school, students are given one grade or one mark for a semester or a quarter in maths or in arts or in world language. Three students can get a B, or if it were a four point scale, a three, for very different reasons. One student is a high achiever, highly skilled, but is lazy and doesn't do work in class, so the teacher won't give them the top mark, they're gonna drop it down. The second student is a B or three level performer. And the third student may have learning difficulties, but works extremely hard and is improved dramatically over the course of the marking period. And so we wanna reward that student's effort and progress. So all three students have the same mark for very different reasons. If we don't distinguish or differentiate those different elements, our grades lose meaning. And I would argue there's a motivational factor if we had a, a 3P performance appraisal and marking and reporting system. We would reward high achievement as we do now and we want to be honest with parents, students, employers, and colleges on how well a student is able to perform. So the first P does that. But we also want to honor and celebrate kids who are growing over time. We want to celebrate their progress. 
Um, and that's separate from their achievement because some kids come into school reading in first grade and some kids don't know their letters. So we want to celebrate the readers, but also celebrate the kids who are learning to read, right? And the third P is separate, but also one that we want to honor. We want to celebrate kids who do work hard, who try, who don't give up, who persist. These are habits that are important in school and arguably more important in life. And we want to celebrate those as well. Finally, in my idealized world, we would not only have reports or marks on those three Ps, but we would have honor roll for all three. We would have honor roll as we sometimes do now for kids who are high achievers or high performers. But we would also have honor roll for kids who've made significant and sustained progress. And thirdly, we would have honor roll for kids who display consistently high productive habits of learning. Mm. And so imagine we could have students who might have learning difficulties or who might come into school below grade level, so to speak. And they could be on two or three honor rolls because they've worked hard, they've made exceptional progress, and yet we're not going to be dishonest and pretend they're high achievers if they're not yet there. But my contention is, and this goes back to the emotional side of learning, that when kids see that they can be successful in important value dimensions, including high achievement, ability to grow and, and improve, and demonstrate productive habits of learning and work habits, they're going to be more likely to continue playing the game and coming to school and being acknowledged for how they're working. Um, right now, our system is dysfunctional because it separates winners from losers. And as the neuroscientist shows us, kids who don't think they can be successful or aren't successful in our current assessment and marking system manifest the fight, flight, freeze responses. They act up to distract from their perceived incompetence. It's easier to get thrown out of class or thrown out of school than be labeled a failure. They shut down. I'll come to school, but I'm not going to do anything mm. or I'm going to hide in the bathroom or I will drop out. Fight, flight, freeze are the brain's responses to dysfunctional systems and dysfunctional atmospheres. And I believe we can transform our grading and reporting system to better address those realities. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. Well, it, it, it links back to the success thing, doesn't it? It gives young people many more ways in which to succeed and to be recognized for, for the journeys that they're each individually on. Um, I don't know if you heard, did you hear the recent, I don't know how recent it was actually, there was a monk debate between Thomas Guskey, who you just mentioned, and Alfie Cohn, which was about, uh, I think the motion was grading should be abolished. Um, and you could probably guess that Alfie Cohn was arguing in favour of that motion and, and Tom was was defending it. It's it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating thing to listen to if you haven't heard it already uh, for listeners oh, as well. I, not only did I hear it, but Tom is a longtime friend and he told me about it and, and we did some talking in preparation. Oh, really? Okay. We <laughs> he's like but, uh, his but, coach. But, you know, Tom, while well, Tom did his best to defend the current grading system, and, and I can defend parts of it, um, Alfie Cohn made compelling cases for many of its flaws. And it's actually Tom's idea of this sort of 3P model that I think undercuts some of the, the extreme uh, critiques, i.e. get just get rid of grades altogether. 
Uh, I would cast it as an essential question or a set of questions. What do we value in schools and how can we communicate effectively how well students are achieving these ends and growing in their capacities? Yeah. That to me is what ideally a grading and reporting system should be able to answer. It's gotten corrupted in all the ways we know. And Alfie Cohn has argued against the abuses and the corruptive aspects of a fixation on grades and marks and GPA and so on. But there's nothing inherently wrong, and nor should there be any uh, devaluing the fact that, that there were important things that we want students to be able to do, and we should be able to gauge how well they're doing um, and help them get better. Um, and that's what a good assessment system does. Mm. Can can I just ask one question that's on a bit of a like the, the links to this? We, we're skipping back a little way here and going back to assessment, but there's something that I've noticed in my own practice that absolutely fascinates me, and I know that you've you've um, observed it as well. We, we've spoken about it a long time ago, which is that like what happens when you when you don't grade kids if if, they, if there's a piece of work that isn't graded. And we would do that. And like often the students said that they really liked the stuff that we asked them to do in Learning to Learn, which they pulled out all the stops for and did incredible work because it wasn't going to be assessed. And it was it sort of had like this reverse effect. Like people often think that the assessment sharpens the student's focus and makes them want to try hard. But I've noticed that it can actually be quite counterintuitive and that when students are asked to do something just for the sake of it, they'll often pour their heart and soul into it in a way that they wouldn't when it was assessed. And I know that you've noticed similar things as well. I wonder if you have any insight into into what's going on there. Sure, I'll go back to that little construct I proposed. Um, When students can see... Uh, goals clearly, if they see the goal as relevant or purposeful to them, authentic to them, and if they believe they can at least be moderately successful if they try, those are the inherent intrinsic motivators. You don't need external pressure or or drive things through grades. And, And look at extracurricular activities as an example. I've seen many kids, including my own two children, who from time to time would would do what I call minimum compliance in school in in their in their classes, but would just put out uh, extraordinary effort way beyond even what was the norm in athletics or in extracurriculars because they saw it as worthwhile, they wanted to do it, um, and they thought they could, and they knew that effort would pay off. So, to me, the example you saw of kids working well without grades was arguably because the goals were clear, they recognized it was worthwhile and relevant, and they thought they could do it, and you supported them in doing it. So, no surprise. Right. That, that, well, that... And the question is, how can we make those kinds of experiences more, more common, more frequent for more kids? Yeah. And I wonder if you if you mapped if you if you asked students to map, that would even be more interesting. The, the, remind me of the three things. One of them is is it clarity of task, purpose and relevance and perception? Are they the three? It's it's goal clarity, but goal clarity is often manifest through the task. And so one of my basic um, procedures in teaching is not only do you want to communicate clearly the goals of, of two students 
and why they're worth learning. But you want to present to them fairly early on the performance task or project that they will do to demonstrate. And by the way, you can often potentially at least navigate that with students. You can help them co-create success criteria. So there's some ownership and you can build in voice and choice into rich, authentic tasks. So that's goal clarity. If it's authentic, then and authentic to their interests and there's some voice and choice in there, they will see personal relevance. And then you communicate to them quite clearly that my goal as a teacher and our learning experiences together as a group will be to support you in achieving these goals. Those are the three elements, goal clarity, relevance, and perceived ability to be successful, and that we're gonna support you in doing that. And that model, when you mentioned that, you just mentioned Judy Willis and the work that you had done. Is that something that came, because that was a, a book where you mapped UBD against like neuroscience and brain science, wasn't it? Is that where that work em emerged from? And have, have you got a name for this model of these three vital ingredients? It, it, it comes out of the, a, a, a longstanding body of knowledge that in part is, is referred to as attribution theory. Right. Uh, what factors do it? Do students attribute success and what factors influence their success in schools? And so while that, that construct has been out around a long time, it, it, it resonates perfectly with the neuroscience, the, the relationship of emotion and learning, self-perception and learning, um, um, feedback mechanisms and structures in which learning occurs, et cetera. Right. Um, if you're interested, I'll, I'll send you a little graphic that we used in our book that outlines these these elements. Oh, please do. That'd be great. And we, if you're happy for me to share that with um, with listeners as well, I could maybe link to it in the show notes so they can visualize that. I feel like I could talk to you literally all day. There's so many more questions that I've got. Um, I'd, I'd like, if I may, just to come back to um, write, trying to write this mission statement for my ideal school. So, so like one thing that I often hear when I when I talk to teachers. They often say um, that they want students to be more resilient, um, that, they, that they're flaky, that they sort of that they give up too easily, say. And so I was trying to think of like, how could we sort of, I think, I think that what I've come up with here is, is basically like more of an assessment thing rather than a goal, which is this idea that like every student should be able to share three examples from from recent months where they persevered at something until they succeeded for example like if that was if but it seems like that's more of an assessment goal like if a teacher's got that in mind how can i make it so that each kid is going to like learn three things that are hard at first that are beyond their comfort zone but they're going to persevere and they're going to be able to show that they have succeeded and that's happening in maths and, and in all these different subject disciplines that seems to me like that's a stage two assessment goal. So, so what's what's missing here? I've got this like broad, vague sort of desire for kids to be resilient, but that seems to me to be too woolly. And I've now got this assessment goal. Each kid should be able to cite three examples where they persevered through to being able to succeed at something. What would be a mission statement there? I'm trying to sort of piece together the middle bit and I can't see it at the moment. All right, here you go. Let me try this. I would say there's probably a, a, a slight distinction between perseverance and resilience. They're, they're related, but not identical. But let's, let's take perseverance. So here's how I would play that out. We're going to identify perseverance as a transfer goal, stated something like 
students will demonstrate persistence or perseverance when confronted with challenging situations. That would be our transfer goal. Right. Underneath that, I would say, all right, so what do we want students to come to understand about perseverance or persistence? And so we would actually play out some understandings, which maybe as adults we know, but young people probably haven't thought about. Things like um, persistence means that you will, uh, a person will continue to work and strive toward a worthy goal, even when things are hard. Someone with persistence recognizes that there are strategies and tools that will help them persevere. And we could we could break those out in more detail, like you ask for help, you use heuristics to solve problems, you have you break a problem, a challenge down into small bits and work on the bits. There, there in other words, the understanding is that there are heuristics and tools and strategies that will enable you to persevere or persist. We might have then a companion essential questions. What does it mean to persevere and why should I do it? What does it look like when someone perseveres? Or how might I persevere in a, in a difficult situation? And we're gonna explore those questions with particular ideas, tools, strategies. Then you, you identify, that, that's stage one. And, and in stage two, you actually did identify assessment evidence. We're going to watch students as they work through challenging tasks or problems. We're going to see if they persist using the strategies that we identified or not. Another one is we're going to ask them to reflect on situations outside of school where they had to persist or persevere, and they have to explain specifically what they did that characterized their perseverance. I mean, to me, it plays out very well through a UBD backward design kind of construct. I get you. Thank you. So I had that broad like transfer goal was the bit that was missing. Um, and I think that you make a good point about the difference between resilience and perseverance. Um, they aren't they aren't quite the same thing. Um, thank you for this. So, so, so there's a number of of um, of like bits in the book, which are like sort of notes from the field sort of thing. To what extent, and it's hard, isn't it? Like to, for, for schools to completely rethink what they're doing from some goals of the future and to redefine everything within the current, for example, accountability structures that exist uh, in your country as well as mine, it's hard for schools to completely reorient what they do. So to what extent have you found that schools have been able to engage with the ideas in this book and to work towards, not just in terms of rethinking their curriculum, but rethinking the whole purpose of school and what kinds of young people do we want to be producing to what extent have you found that schools have been able to take this, the idea of this book on board and to actually, um, you know, reshape what they're doing? It's a great question. Um, loosely speaking, I distinguish between schools or districts that are, quote, in the box and those that are out of the box. And by the box, I mean they are operating within a traditional constraints of subject matter learning, uh, tests and grades, university admission systems, things like schedules where we group everybody by their age group and they march through <laughs> irrespective, you know, calendar driven systems. That's in the box. Um, and so let me start there. A, a school or district needs to determine what, what elements of the box, in other words, what existing structures are unchangeable versus 
might they influence or change any of the existing structures to better achieve their ends? And I recognize that in many, particularly public school districts or schools themselves, the box is pretty tightly defined externally. They can't change a lot of things. So in that case, my question is, given the box that you can't change, how might you nonetheless use the ideas of backward design, of UBD, of the curriculum and assessment system and the instructional models that we put forth to do a better job within that box? And I have worked with a majority of my, my time, by the way, is working with schools and districts that are fairly uh, box driven. Mm. And there's a lot to be done within that. If, however, you have the potential to get out of the box, either because you're an independent school or you're a startup, like your colleague Kate had the opportunity to do in in the in the Central America. Mm. Then you can literally work through the chapters of, of leading modern learning to build your everything backward from your mission, your curriculum assessment system, your pedagogical model, and your structures that support all of that. And that would be my ideal school, working through without constraint from external uh, structures and requirements, uh, that system. Yeah, yeah. It seems that there's a whole different. So, so you, you, so this book is mainly. I know we talked about this offline as well. This is mainly a sort of an outside of the box blueprint. Um, there's like a sort of a different set of set of procedures and a different set of constraints that face those schools that are in the box. Well, I would say, ideally, if you had the op opportunity to create a school from scratch, this book would be your blueprint, <laughs> I would like to say. However, I'm, I'm working more, more often than not with schools that are, quote, in the box. A lot of school districts and independent schools in the U.S. and international schools with which I'm working either have or are developing a profile of a graduate or are revisiting their mission to recognize it's just too much apple pie and mother kinds of statements, and they need to be more precise in terms of outcome or, or impact, I'll call them transfer goals. Um, and that within that, they, they have and, and can do some significant um, school re reform, or in your words, rethinking, and still stay within, within the box. In other words, you can have more authentic and I think deep meaningful learning, focus on transfer, even if you're still teaching largely in discipline-based structures. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing. Now, by the way, one point you made earlier, I, I want to come back to, because I agree with this and have for a long time. If the population of a region supports it, and maybe in, in rural areas, it, it's less likely. Um, I do think that there is value in having two or even three or four school models that are available to parents and students. For the people that want, quote, traditional, knowledge-rich, high discipline, everything gauged by standardized tests, if that's their belief about what they think is best for their kids, let them have it. And, and for the parents that want more progressive, leading modern learning kinds of experiences for their kids, let's have a school that offers that. Because I think one of the greatest challenges is trying to appeal to both ends of that continuum in a single school. It's very hard to do. It puts enormous stress on everybody, and we end up compromising both both ends uh, too often. So 
I like the idea of let's let's differentiate the nature of schools and give people some choice in what they think is a best fit for them. So, so let's 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 um, draw this part of the conversation to a close. I know that we've been talking for a long time already. Um, if if, like, if you had to, to to give any sort of takeaway messages um, for schools, let's talk about schools in the box because there's more of them. Um, if you're if you're at a teacher level, at a, a classroom level, or at a level of a department, or at a level of a whole school, or maybe a group of schools. Where would you begin um, if you were if you were thinking? I'm not really sure that we're preparing young people for the future in the way that we sh- that we could be, but there are all of these top down constraints and accountability things that are keeping things pretty much in place. What what would you suggest to people as a, as a starting point for how they can start to think? Because people are very powerful. I think sometimes more so than they realise in their ability to to change things um, within the constraints of the existing system. Um, but it definitely takes some thinking through. So so what would be your sort of your takeaway message for people in that position? Well, we've we've written about a set of what we call strategic principles that are meant to offer some some suggestion or guidance in that realm. But let me just give you one, which I think applies at the teacher level, the team level, the school level, and the district, if you're operating in a collection of schools. And it's a straightforward um, aphorism. Think big, start small, go for early wins and build on those. Think big. I've given in, in our book, Leading Modern Learning, a a conception of what it means to think big. Think backward from long-term transfer goals and play out the elements as described in the book. Mm -hmm. And to do that, even in a traditional school in the box, is a three to five year proposition. So the leaders have to think big and individual teachers can do the same for their own teaching. Start small. Everyone I know in our profession is overwhelmed especially stressed by the demands of the pandemic. And so we have to be sensitive, very sensitive to the idea, the capacity of the system and of the people within it to embrace something new, particularly if it's a radical or big, big innovation. So while we want to think big and have the end in mind, we want to start small and don't overwhelm the system. I have seen too many well-intentioned reform or rethinking efforts in schools fail because while the vision was noble and auditory, the leaders moved too fast to try to implement and the system couldn't sustain it. And then it broke down and never recovered. So think big, but start small and go for an early win. This is a strategic principle, as you well know, whether it's a teacher saying, okay, I wanna start focusing more on transfer and more on meaning making. So I'm gonna pick one unit I teach that I know well, that lends itself to this. And I'm going to try some of the things that, that Jay and, and James and others are, are recommending. And I'm, I'm just going to give it a go. Um, I'm going to try to create at least one authentic task, or I'm going to give kids some voice and choice when I haven't before. Or I'm going to frame my teacher around a central question. One thing, and I'm going to just try it out. It's not going to be overwhelming, and I think I can make it happen. Same thing at the school level. 
maybe we're just going to take one innovation and we're going to try it collectively over time. Uh, we're not going to rush it and we're going to give it time to mature. We're going to get feedback and adjust. Um, because here's what I've learned in my career. You will get more from an early win that you can build on than trying to do too much too soon with the wrong people and it collapses and then you can't recover from that misstep. So it is proven to be an effective strategic principle. Think big, start small, go for early wins, build on success. And again, it's a long-term journey with the end in mind, but those are the means to that end. Well, thank you very much for that. I feel like we've had, it's not really been a, um, a, a, a fast-paced um, rattle through that book. I feel like we've done it justice. It's a fascinating read. I, I thoroughly recommend it to everybody who hasn't read it already to get a hold of a copy. Um, so let's move on now to to you. Um, I, I like to get to know the guest in this podcast, as you may have noticed if you've listened to any previous episodes. And I'm interested to hear about your journey and why it is that you became sort of the person that you became, right? So first of all, thinking about your own education, your own experience of school, and later on, you know, formal education. And then, yeah, let's just take that first of all, and then we'll do the next question about significant learning afterwards. All right. And so since I've been in this profession for 50 years, and uh, it's a long, long form podcast, I will, uh, <laughs> I will, I thought about this because you you previewed you're going to ask me this question. So in reflecting on it, which I hadn't done, by the way, quite this way, as a student, I can think of four somewhat seminal or impactful experiences that have, have impacted on my profession. By the way, I went to Catholic schools from kindergarten through 12th grade, uh, very traditional. Um, and I wasn't I was not a particularly motivated student, but I did I did well enough, and I was in a college prep high school, and I went to a good college. But I was rarely inspired by school. But but here were four experiences I reflected on, and, and I realized all of them have threads to my current work. The first example was when I was in fourth grade, and because I was in a Catholic school, we had religion. And at the time, the Catholic religious education was based on a book called the Baltimore Catechism. The Baltimore Catechism was a series of questions with answers, and we literally had to memorize the answers. Now, the questions were good, but the but it was dogmatic. So one of the questions was, you know, why, who is God, you know, and the answer is God is love. And another question was, why did God put you on earth? And the answer was, God put you on earth as a test, uh, <laughs> and your reward would be heaven or hell, depending on how you do on the test, right? Um and so that was my religion. But I remember in fourth grade, we had learned, or I think previously, maybe grade three, you know, why did God put you on earth? God put you on earth as a test. And then somewhere in fourth grade, the concept of omniscience came up. And the, and the answer was, you know, God is omniscient. God knows all. So I remember raising my hand and saying, well, you know, if, if God knows all, but he put us on earth as a test. Well, he knows how we would do. So why would he even test us? Because he already knows the answer. And I was told that that was not a proper question. <laughs> That's a brilliant question. And and so it, I guess that as I think about it, 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 it got me to recognize that questions are important and questions that are in interesting to kids should be pursued. Um, and that, that education should be about questions, not just answers, right? So that was one. 
I'll fast forward to high school. Literally, James, the only experience in academics, unlike extracurriculars, academics that I remember as kind of inspiring intrinsic motivation and interest was a high school, I think it was my junior year, we had to write a research paper, but the, but the, the teacher um, emphasized that we could pick a topic of interest. And that was one of the few times I ever had choice in school, believe it or not. And I picked humor and I wanted to, I wanted to better understand what, what makes something funny. And I, I, I went to the library on my own and, and was reading books and studying humorous reflections and wrote my paper on humor. Um, and I remember that because it was of interest and I went deep into it and I didn't think at all about what grade am I going to get. It was just something I was inherently interested in. Mm. And it was an early reminder of the, of the power of tapping into student interest. Um, fast forward to college, two quick experiences that were impactful. My sophomore year of college, I was coincidentally and concurrently taking uh, history of art, world literature, uh, or no, literature course and world history. And at one point during the semester, the three areas, uh, there was a confluence of, of time frame. So we were studying English literature, the Romantics. We were looking at the Romantic period in visual art, and we were studying the, the history of that time period historically. And I saw these connections and I thought to myself, wow, I, I literally had never thought about interdisciplinary connections, but it wasn't by design. It was by coincidence. Mm. And that stuck with me. It's like, well, shouldn't we be doing that more deliberately? Right. The final example was an insight into assessment. I was a college swimmer and, you know, a competitive swimmer. And in the summers, I, I ran a summer. I, I managed swimming pools and I taught swimming lessons. I wanted to be able to teach a lifeguarding course at my pool, but to do so, you had to have the water safety instructor certificate, which was a Red Cross certified program. And one semester, the PE department, the physical education department of my college offered that. And so it was great because I wanted to get that certification so I could teach life-saving course in the summer. My, my college roommate was also a competitive swimmer on the team. And he also worked at pools. So when I saw it, I said, hey, look at this. We had an elective. And so we, we signed up for the course. So we went to the course. There were 14 students and we met at the pool. And here's what I never forgot. And it really has impacted my thinking about assessment. The first day of the course, the instructor demonstrated the final exam. And he said, this is what you're going to have to do to be certified as a water safety instructor. I don't make this up. This is Red Cross international certification requirements. There were two parts to it. He said, you're going to have a written test on this book. And, and we had bought the book for the course. And he said, you got to know this book and you got to pass it at 85% correct. And then he said, you got to pass the performance part of the, the course. And there were three components. One was a water rescue. And he actually had two former students in the class come and demonstrate the water rescue techniques that we would have to ha be proficient in. One of which I'll never forget, first day of the course, the, the potential student is in the deep end of the pool and two swimmers on each side of him come toward him and one of them lunges and grabs him around the neck and it could be from behind. And you had to extricate yourself and get control of that swimmer and take them under your control to the side of the pool. 
that was one. And there were several others, including the first aid requirements, you know, when you bring a person out of the pool, like resuscitation. Mm. The, the the second was, well, that was the second, the first aid requirements that you could demonstrate proficiency in those. And the third was you had to be able to swim a half mile in under, I don't remember, I think it was 12 minutes. And he said, so the first day of class was a preview of the final exam. And the instructor, I'll never forget this, ended the class by saying, my goal is that all of you will pass these requirements and become certified. Your goal is to do what you need to do to be ready. We only have so much time in class. And he gave us a syllabus. Here's what we're going to be doing. But there's definitely out of work work that you're going to have to do. If you're not a strong swimmer, you got to get your butt to the pool and start swimming laps because you can pass everything else. But if you don't pass the swimming requirement, I can't certify you. And he said, even if you're a good swimmer, you got to get with one or two other members of the class and practice the water safety uh, rescue requirements. You can't do this on your own. You've got to be able to do it with others. And you got to practice that because it's not going to happen just from a few classes. My roommate and I walked back to our dormitory from that from that first class, and we planned literally a schedule where we were going to come down. We, we got one other student to come, and we were going to practice the water rescue stuff because we knew we nailed the swimming part because we did more of that in every workout in practice. Um, but we knew we had to do that. That's a long story, but it, it reveals an important point. It's not enough to say your goal is to pass the course. The student needs to know what it means to pass the course, what the assessment expectations are, and they need to be mindful of what they need to do to do it. I also appreciated the the instructor saying, look, this is not a gotcha game. I'm not trying to get a bell curve of of achievement here. I want all of you to be successful and I'm going to do my part, but you got to do your part and you got to know what that is. So it's a long answer, but those four experiences as a learner have impacted me and my practice to this day. Yeah, thank you. That's a fascinating answer. Uh, and I appreciate that you've done quite a lot of thinking there. And that sounds like an excellent uh, swimming coach. So did, I, mean, I assume that that swimming coach achieved a high, a high level of success with that class. I think 13 out of 14 people passed. And the one person that didn't was a combination of couldn't do the swimming requirement, but also literally panicked when they were grabbed from behind in the deep end. Yeah. They freaked out. And it's it's not uncommon, even for a strong swimmer, which is why you really had to practice to get confident and comfortable in otherwise a harrowing situation. Yeah, it does sound it does sound quite terrifying being grabbed from behind in the deep end of a pool. That's going to trigger your amygdala hijack, like fight or <laughs> yeah, yeah. flight or panic. And by the way, I've had response. two experiences in my life. One was in a very uh, ex- uh, big wave ocean where I, I literally pulled someone out and I didn't, they didn't grab me from behind, but I knew enough to know that they, a, a panicky person who's drowning, their only goal is to get their head above water. And so they will literally grab with a death grip to try to do that. And I, my, my training in that course enabled me to understand how to bring a person in who literally was drowning in the waves on a, on a big wave beach day from that training and talk about authentic. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. 
Talk about transfer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And so my second question, I mean, you've already sort of talked about this, really. I'm interested in this idea of significant learning. And this might be stuff that happened outside. You were talking about moments that happened in your formal education. I'm interested in, in, like, in the moments that shape people, because often they don't take place within formal educational settings. I'm just interested to, if, as you look back over your life, like what are the sort of the key ideas that have that have really shaped you, or it might be people that you met, it might be a book that well, you read. for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it in the career realm. Well, with one exception, if there's time. But in the career realm, I've had seven, quote, jobs or positions in my 50-year career, and only one of them existed before I first got it, which was my first teaching job. And by the way, I started teaching fifth grade, and the reason I chose that when I decided I wanted to be a teacher was I wanted to teach the oldest kids I could teach and still be able to work with various subject areas and, and connect them. And, and I, I didn't have the patience to work with very young kids, nor did I want to spend my time on those very basic skills. But when you went beyond fifth grade in the U.S. at that time, at least, everything was subject specific. Right. And I didn't see myself teaching seven periods of the same topic again and again. So fifth grade, I like because they were old enough. They had basic skills. You could still get them excited. You can make interdisciplinary connections and they weren't yet jaded. The hormones hadn't quite kicked in. So so but but beyond that, every job I had was was new or I created it. After my first couple of years of teaching, I um, I had in my in all my classes some extremely precocious students, two or three or four, let's say. They were way beyond the curriculum. They were bored silly. And when I asked in my early years what other teachers did, if you, I said, what do you do with these kids? who they, they, they get, They're reading adult level work, and I'm not going to stick them in a fifth grade basal reader. And they would say things like, oh, I have them do my bulletin boards, or they help me correct papers, mm. or, or, or they go to the library and read on their own. And I thought, surely... We, we, could, we need to do something more than that. It, it's essentially busy work. So I developed very loosely some things that I would now call enrichment. Um, one of the early books I read was by Dr. Edward de Bono. Uh, and he wrote a book in the 70s called Lateral Thinking. And his notion was, we can actually teach people how to think, both critically and creatively. And he had these tools and, and, and exercises that he called lateral thinking. How do you think outside the box? And I came across that and I thought it was fascinating. So I did some lateral thinking exercises with these kids. Uh, here's an example. Design an exercise machine for a pet and explain the logic of your design and how it will help your pet exercise. You know, And, and what I found was the kids got into it and they were doing interesting thinking. Now, this was before the days of the internet. So coming up with interesting, rich, thought-provoking exercises and activities was hard. Mm. So I made stuff up. But I did it with the right intentions. I just thought these kids had great potential. They were way beyond the typical curriculum. But what do you do with them? So I got known for kind of working with those kids. And in our school district, my, my starting my fourth year of teaching, we got a federal grant to develop model, quote, gifted programs for highly able students. And I was picked to be one of five teachers to work on this project. Now, I worked in a school district with over 100,000 students. So this is large scale. And 
we actually, through this grant, got a, a chance to work with the top leaders in gifted education in the country. And as a very young teacher, 25, 26 year old, I'm working with people that I had studied in, in undergraduate school. Um, I would sit around the table at lunch and, and talk to James Gallagher and Sandra Kaplan and Paul Torrance. And, and, and the other four teachers that were in this team were extraordinary. I mean, they were just much better teachers than I was. But I learned tremendously through that experience. And part of what we had to do was we had to develop a, quote, curriculum for these highly able kids, many of whom were disaffected or unmotivated by traditional school because they mm, were bored. Yeah. And so we developed uh, programs that were now what we would call project and problem-based learning, independent study, inquiry-oriented learning. In literature, we work with junior grade books based around Socratic seminars. Um, we were doing stuff that now we would cast as 21st century skill-like. A big emphasis was on, quote, higher-order thinking. And I used Bloom's taxonomy as my referent at the time. So, so I worked in that area, both working with students, developing curriculum, later developing programs, and I became administrator working with 85 schools to build programs for these kinds of students. I also had the closest thing to an educational nirvana experience in conjunction with that work, which is occurring in the mid 70s through mid 80s. I was asked to uh, direct a program for gifted students in the summer. This was a residential program. We had kids 24 seven for two weeks and we had two sessions. So we had two, a whole month, and these were among the brightest kids in the state of Maryland. And they were for students entering grades seven, eight, and nine. So these were older kids than I had originally taught. They were grades seven, eight, and nine, which would be 13 to or 12 to 15 years of age. But these kids were doing work that was literally equivalent to high school and college level. They had the intellectual capacity for that level of work. So I was 26 years old and asked to direct this program. And I think they asked me because I was single and I would probably be the only one that would want to live in a college dormitory for a month in the summer. But so I naively said, yeah, it sounds interesting. I said, what's the program? And they said, well, you have to create it. <laughs> so at a very young age, I literally developed a program. And the smartest thing I did was to bring in smart people and we co-created what to me is still the closest thing to an educational nirvana that I have experienced in my life. I mean, I could go into a lot of detail about what the nature of the program was, but it was, I will say it briefly, it was a authentic project-based learning curriculum, in-depth, student-directed in many cases, uh, for an entire week of immersion. And it was all around authentic issues, problems, and and creative possibilities in four different program areas. But to the brain sciences and the emotional side, we learn pretty quickly when you have a group like this together in an immersive 24-7 environment, this is a unique opportunity to address the needs of early adolescents who also happen to be the brightest kid in their school. So we developed over time what I would call an affective curriculum. And we actually had through these, these group meetings that we would have in the evenings, kids exploring questions like, what does it mean to be bright? 
And how does that relate to how you're accepted by your peers? Do you ever have to hide your intelligence wow, to be accepted? Oh, yeah. How is school supporting your, your growth and where is it constraining it? I mean, we had these powerful questions and, and some most amazing discussions among kids in, in a safe, you know, homogeneously rich group with, with able counselors, young gifted people themselves who are facilitating this. And I can't tell you how many students said to me, both when they were leaving the program and, and subsequently in correspondence, that while the academic program was rich and stimulating and amazing, what they really got from this experience were through those those group meetings, the, so the affective, emotional uh, side of the curriculum. Yeah. And I mean, I, I could go on and on about this and I'm already probably over talking. But well, I was just, I was literally just thinking, I would really like to get you back on at some point to go into this educational Nirvana um, experience in more detail, because that sounds like a beautiful example of, of rethinking education in action. Yeah, I would be delighted to do that. So let me fast forward just to end up and kind of wrap up my question. But the, this was hugely impactful. I would say then mid-career, I'm 35, 36, had 10 years of experience, both teaching gifted kids, working on programs, and this extraordinary summer immersion with an amazing group of both teachers and students. I was increasingly of the, of the persuasion and the philosophy that the things that were happening for the very brightest kids needed to be expanded much more widely into mainstream education. Right. Because in the U.S. in the 80s, we were in a, quote, back to basics movement, which today might be the traditionalist, you know, high discipline, standardized tests, knowledge rich curriculum stuff. And and literally we would hear things like, well, you know, we do high order thinking and enrichment for the gifted and back to basics for everyone else, which was 89 to, no, to 95 percent of the rest of the population. This was also the emergence in the in the psychological and pedagogical literature of the shift from behaviorism to more cognitive and constructivist views of learning. So I was in a master's program at the time, and so I was immersed in sort of the theoretical shifts, but also manifest in the programmatic curricular and instructional shifts and the things that I was doing in gifted education. So. Um, during that period, I was approached by someone at the state ed department in Maryland who was himself a progressive educator. And he, he got in touch with me and he said, um, I have an idea I'd like to put out, I'll put forth with you. Could we have lunch sometime and I'll, I'll want to make a proposal to you. And I didn't know this guy, but he's in state ed. So I met with him and he said, I've been following the work you're doing in gifted education. And he said, especially the higher order thinking things you're doing. And he said, I, I think that this needs to be more, more widely <laughs> shared. And it was a perfect confluence of my emerging philosophy. So he at the time had a position. He said, I'm creating a position. I'm going to call it uh, promoting higher order thinking. And I want it to be for all kids. Would you be interested? And it was a perfect time in my career. And I said, yes. So I went to the state ed department, not to be a bureaucrat, but to work on this innovative project of how could we engage, quote, higher order thinking um, and, and build it more into the curriculum. And not just as separate matters, like we're going to have a course on thinking, but how do you integrate it into subject matter teaching, but also build in the kind of assessments that are associated. So I worked on that for a number of years and then kind of fast forwarding. 
in the late 80s, there was an emergence nationally in the U.S. of the, quote, standards-based movement. And this was actually hit, um, this actually was launched by a, a presidential commission. Uh, George Bush, one, was president in the late 80s. And Bill Clinton at the time was a governor of a state, and he was put in charge of the president's education commission. And there was a national summit, which which ended up giving the blueprint for standards-based education in the U.S. Each state then was asked to adopt and implement its standards-based reforms. And I was put on the team of five people to enact the standards-based reforms in Maryland starting in 1990. It was a, a hugely ambitious effort that resulted or, or required both the development of standards, state standards in every subject area, but the more unique part of this job was something that we decided to do and I was an advocate for, and that was to change the nature of standardized testing in the state. And to make a long story short, we developed only state wide performance assessments as our state assessment system. We had no multiple choice items on state tests for nine years in Maryland. To try to do this large scale was extraordinarily challenging. It was not widely done, at least in the US. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to work on, but it was arguably the most transformative. My own children went through Maryland schools during that era and I saw the impact of the state performance assessments on their teaching, their learning. And it reminded me of how powerful, if you get the assessment right, it can drive everything else. Yeah, yeah. If you're driving it to the right ends. Um, that was a huge impact on my learning. However, and the last part of this is my career was, I didn't want to be a, a bureaucrat managing an accountability system, even one that was innovative and performance-based. My roots were still back at what does it mean for day-to-day -day teaching? And so something emerged in our state called the Maryland Assessment Consortium, which was a grassroots effort of school districts that came together. And the goal was to teach teachers more about authentic performance-based assessment, because the state's assessing now this way, teachers need to know what this means and make it part of their classroom routine. Mm -hmm. And so the Maryland Assessment Consortium had a twofold mission. One, to provide professional development to teachers and school leaders on what does it mean to do performance-based assessment, more formative assessment, a more authentic assessment. But secondly, to actually design such rich assessments and make them available as a resource. Because as you know, it's really hard to create really good, rich, um, performance assessments with well-developed rubrics. So I worked on that for, for six years, and it was probably the second most impactful experience other than my Nirvana summer enrichment program that I described. I learned so much about the power of working with teachers in professional development that's product-oriented toward creating rich, authentic assessments that would really be the underpinning of rich curriculum that would drive rich pedagogy. And so I worked on that and we developed some extraordinary uh, models and had great experiences with teachers and classrooms as a result. During that period, I met Grant Wiggins, 
who at the time was working with Ted Sizer in the Coalition of Essential Schools, a very progressive movement in the US. And he, one of his niche areas was authentic assessment. So we brought Grant in to work with us. And it turned out that he and I were the same age. We hit it off personally. He's one of the brightest people I ever met. And I just loved sparring with him intellectually. And because of that meeting under authentic assessment, um, someone at the um, ASCD organization uh, met with us and asked if we would like to work together and write a book for ASCD, one of the prominent educational publishers, assuming that we would do a book on authentic assessment. And I remember after the meeting where we had that request, Grant and I met the next morning for breakfast. And I said, what do you think? He said, I, I would be interested in writing a book with you, but I don't want it just to be on assessment. He said, he told me his doctoral work at Harvard was on curriculum. And he said, I want it to be a broader construct with assessment as a part. And I said, and my work is largely on pedagogy and, and teaching methods for engaging students. Now I would call it meaning making, teaching for understanding, using essential questions. And I want the book to address pedagogy. And so Understanding by Design was formed essentially at that breakfast meeting. Um, we wrote the book together, had no idea if anyone would read it. We're not university people or weren't paid to publish. We just wanted to put our ideas down. And when the book was published, to our surprise, it took off. And, um, and so the last part of my long, long, long answer, the last decision I made in my career was to retire from my position. I had 25 years in public education at the school district and state levels. Um, I could get an early retirement with a modest pension. My wife was working and I decided after 25 years to take the plunge and go full time into writing and consulting. Um, and I haven't looked back. So that's the second half of my years, 25 years writing and consulting. But that's the pathway to to where I am now. Mm, thank you. Um, and so you can really see in the, the way that you constructed your answer, going way back to, you know, your experience in Catholic school and primary school. And I, went, I had a Catholic education as well, by the way. <laughs> but I, I wish that I'd had this sort of that, that, that question and answer format, like what is God, God is love. <laughs> I sort of part of me wishes that I'd even had that because I never even I don't think I fell out with Catholicism. I just sort of never even understood it in the first <laughs> place because it was just felt so confusing and boring. Like my brain just couldn't even engage with it. Anyway, but, but sorry, that's an aside. Going way back to your early childhood, it's really clear how all of these threads have sort of have, have woven together and, and led to that point where you, where you wrote UBD with Grant. And then obviously that was the beginning of this whole new part of your, of your um, career where you've been traveling a lot and working with schools all over the world, haven't you, to, to develop these ideas and many others that have been developed through your other, through your other work. So it sounds very exciting. And I, I didn't do 25 years in the classroom. I did about 12 years, I think. Um, but it looks like my life is going to follow a similar course, which looks good because you're looking quite happy and healthy and, and sane at the end of it, um, which is great. And it's like I say, it's just, it's an absolute joy to speak with you. There is such a wealth of of important ideas that we've that we've covered today um and as i say we could go on for much longer but um but we've, we've been going for three hours already so so let, let's move on to the final part of this conversation which is um gonna be about the, the the big three questions that i always ask each guest what's the what are the positives 
something, and it could just be one thing that you that you've seen that you think is really good. And this could be at the level of a classroom, at the level of a school, at the level of national policy. You know, whatever whatever level you want to take it at. The second question is, what are the major challenges that you think that we face? And again, that could be at any of those levels, or it could be like at the species level. And lastly, how are we going to fix those challenges? So let's start with positives. Yeah, it's a very, very broad question. I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to know what level to, to attack. I, I would guess for me, the positive is kind of at the at the system level, the school or district level. And that is, I have seen smart, courageous school leaders who collaboratively work with faculty, and, and not everyone's going to play along, but work with a, a willing group to to really form a vision and develop a, a backward design plan, if you will, to enact it, and that, that it has discernible benefits and, and, and positive impacts on learning, on student performance, on motivation, uh, as well as as engagement and, and motivation for faculty who are a part of this. That's positive. We, we can make change for the good, and it, it, it's invigorating. Um, but it takes, I would say, courageous leaders who are willing to think big, some cases buck the system, and in a very deliberate way, cultivate the competence of everybody, <laughs> the staff, the students, bring the parents along to make a difference. That's positive. I, I think we can make improvements, and I've seen it. Absolutely. I would just like to, just quickly, if I may, I completely agree. And and I've interviewed a number of such um, school leaders on the podcast before. I'm thinking of uh, the people like Kulvan Atwal and Nahida Maharasingham and uh, Rachel McFarlane, to name but three. Three brilliant examples of school leaders who have just done really transformational stuff very much in, inside the box. It, uh, it can be done, this stuff. Yeah. Um in terms of in terms of negatives, boy, the, I mean, we've touched on many of them. I think it goes everything from the the structures of most schools, the box, if you will. We just know that the box and its structures are in many ways out of sync with what we know about what meaningful learning requires, what the neurosciences are contributing to our understanding of learning uh, and development. Um, and that we could literally go back through for another three hours and look at every facet of traditional schooling and the structures that bind it and talk about how those structures potentially at least have negative impact. Um, and so the, the phrase restructuring, or in your, your case, rethinking, does have meaning. Form does follow function. And to me, there are two foundational questions that impact how we should think about school. One of them is mission, which we've talked about a lot, and you've heard my position. We should have clear transfer goals within and across subjects that define our mission and plan backward from them. But the second element is what we know and understand now about learning, learning that's deep, rich, meaningful, self-motivating. And from cognitive sciences and from neurosciences, we have greater clarity about the answer. It's the confluence of what we want in our mission, what we're trying to achieve, and what we know about learning that 
should be the, the way of framing everything else that happens in school. They're like two legs walking, right? The mission defines the what we're in business to produce or develop. And the, 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 the learning principles and, and insights define the how. How are we going to go about it? How will principles of learning influence how we frame our curriculum, how we organize schools, how we teach, how we assess, how we use time outside of school, roles of teachers, all of that can be, those things can be answered with clarity of mission and agreement on what we know about learning. Um, and, and so the question of what are the negatives, you can look at the factors that exist now that, that are at odds with the, the vision of school that I put forth or that will interfere with what we know about learning. And if we can't, if we, if we don't transform those or restructure or rethink those, at best, we're just going to tinker within the box, but we're not going to have the power uh, and potential of modern learning. Yes. Yeah. And, and like the, the fact that I think the, the fact that it is called the box, and I think that everybody understands this metaphor that you have of like inside the box and outside the box, the fact that it is the, like a singular box <laughs> and that like we don't have a system with many boxes with many different colors and shapes. And some of them have got lids on and some of them don't. And some of them have got like weird gardens attached to them. <laughs> like, like that's what we want to see. Don't we, we want to see like, it's so obvious that the one thing that we know about child development is that, it's very, very diverse. Like there's no two children who are really very alike. You know, like some of them look very alike. Like when they're at school, they all dress the same because they all wear the same uniform and their hair's the same and they conform to one another. But when you put them in a different environment, like in the self-managed learning college where I used to work, they don't all look the same and they all have a very clearly identified, you know, um, um, personhood, if you like, identity. Um, and so it seems it seems obvious that you know a one size fits all box is just not suitable. It might well be suitable. It, the, the the mainstream model might well be suitable for. And my son is one of them. He's like a square peg in a square hole. <laughs> he's perfectly happy. I've told I've told him about other alternative places that he could go, and he's like, "Why would I want to do that?" He's perfectly happy. He's in his final year of schooling, and and many many kids are like that, you know. But there are also many 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 kids. There's something like a million young people in this country who are persistent absentees from school i don't know what the percentage is but that's quite a high percent it's about eight or eight percent i think um of young people there was something like seven hundred thousand recently so we're in a, in a school of 60 million sorry in a country of 60 million it's nearly three quarters of a million kids were absent on one day last month wow. when, when they did this sample so so there's huge problems with the absenteeism with mental health um, young people are feeling the strain like never before. The the, the signs that they are not okay are, are, are so abundant. And I'm not suggesting that schools are to blame for those things, although I think maybe in some cases you could make that case. But a more interesting question is, if schools were different, could they could they alleviate all of this pressure that young people are feeling? Yeah, and the, the answer is clearly yes. Yeah, let me just mention briefly when I asked when I first met Judy Willis. And I heard her story, her career path. I said, why did you quit a lucrative, well-esteemed profession uh, uh, as a neurologist to become a teacher? And she said her specialty was adolescent and a child and adolescent neurology. And she said, starting in the 80s as a, as a neurologist, she was getting more referrals from schools, but also from parents 
for neurological evaluation because the kids were having significant problems. And she told me that the percentage of kids with, with true neurological problems was no greater in the 80s than they were in previous decade, but the referrals were way up, especially from schools. And she said to me so pointedly, she said, in the majority of cases, what I was seeing were the, the patterns of healthy brains operating in unhealthy environments. She said the referrals were basically the stress symptoms, fight, flight, or freeze. You know, and she had the, the medical names for them. And she said, I became increasingly convinced that something was going on in schools that were that was precipitating these greater stress responses and yeah. referrals. And she equated it. I don't know if you could ever, you know, certify this, but she's in the U.S. Uh, links it to the onset of the, quote, standards-based movement and the high-stakes testing movement, which she said put stress on administrators, teachers, students to conform and the whole measurement-driven, grade-driven um, stressors were resulting in these these manifestations. So it, it's there are very real real consequences, and 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 the and the sort of the mental health that you reference and and the stress symptoms that we see. I mean, absenteeism is an example of a flight response, right? Yeah, of course. So um, now, by the way, I know we're going long, but there's there's one more personal piece I would like to to include um, if, if there's a few more minutes. Please do, yeah. So I, I rarely reveal this uh, publicly, but I'm at the point in my life where I want to. Other than my family, the most impactful experience of my life has been uh, that I'm a meditator. I learned to meditate right out of college in 1971, influenced by a friend of mine who had started, and, and I noticed some some subtle but positive impacts. But then in my early career, um, especially when I got that, that first job outside of my, the classroom, uh, I was way too young for that job. And it was very stressful, even though it was exciting. And I just started having stress symptoms of I couldn't sleep. I, I was tense. My, my shoulders literally ached because I would hunch my shoulders. And, and a, a friend of mine who was also a meditator, one day stopped me and said, you know, you're going to have a heart attack by the time you're 30 if you don't cope with this. And, and I had learned to meditate, but I hadn't developed it as a practice. Uh, and, and so it was, it was my own stress in my life that exercise, which was my other uh, way of de-stressing, was not sufficient. And so I remember I had learned to meditate, but I hadn't developed it as a practice, so I did. The meditation I do is basically a mantra meditation. It's not, I'm not tied to, to spiritual things or, or, you know, Hindu traditions. It's not mindfulness in the Buddhist sense, but at, at its core, it's a process for shutting off the noise. That's it. It's a mantra process for shutting off the noise. Yeah. For, Is it transcendental meditation? It was, it's TM. That's, that yeah. is the basis. Um, and so from literally from, Age 25 on, I learned it earlier, but 25 on, it, it became a deliberate practice twice a day, 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and 
it it has literally been transformative in many many ways the main the main manifestation is not only stress relief but clarity of thinking in my younger days i was not a good writer I, i hated writing i wasn't good at it i didn't like to do it and i've developed i think into a pretty good writer and people have said to me well, your writing is really clear. Or when you speak, it's, it, I, it can follow you. It's very clear. And quite frankly, I, I attribute that to the clarity that has emerged from my meditative practice in conjunction with my experience. I mean, knowledge has accrued from my experience, but the clarity has come in large part through meditation. So w- without sounding, I, I've always been hesitant to talk about this because I hate people that proselytize anything that's religious or I found the best diet or you should you know, do, <laughs> do hot yoga. I just don't like that. But, but at the same time, you asked me a question, so I want to be honest. And, and this has been impactful. Let me wrap up what I would love to see or what I believe and would love to see at some point. I think that Everything we do externally in schools, the curriculum, the pedagogy, the structures, the marking system are all important. But the essence of learning is in the mind of the learner. And how might we cultivate the mind of the learner to be more receptive to meaningful, lasting learning? And I just have to to believe that from my experience, that if we can teach kids how to quiet the mind, how to shut down the noise, at least from time to time, how to recognize there's a quiet space from which you can you can both synthesize and deepen your learning and also as the wellspring for new ideas to pop up. I think there's great potential there. I think it's an untapped frontier. I can tell you at a very practical level, and I could cite dozens, if not hundreds of examples, when I was wrestling with ideas with Grant Wiggins, or I'm working with teachers on a PD project, or I'm writing a new article, that I get these insights that emerge when I come out of meditation that, that aren't deliberate. They're not by design, but they, they, they come out. And I actually believe that we can dial down the noise of the day-to-day thinking and all the craziness in our heads and get to a quiet place that there is a synthesis that occurs in the brain and that new ideas are, are more fertile in those zones. Um, so again, without sounding too, too noble or too um, spiritual, uh, it's been a huge impact for me and it's just something I want to mention. Thank you. I'm glad that I'm glad that you did. Um, and I, I mean, I think I've already mentioned two or three times in this conversation that the clarity of your thinking, you know, really shines through. Um, and you've inspired me to double down on my meditation practice. I have a morning routine, but I have I don't do the twice daily thing. And I know that TM people often do it twice daily. Um, it seems to be when you when you um, reap the reap the rewards of it. Um, but I agree. And 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 have you have you um, experienced or tried to do this with with young people much we we did it a little bit in the in the learning skills skills curriculum what's your what's your sense of of doing doing mindfulness or or tm type meditations in schools i i have been i have a number of friends who are mindfulness in education advocates and have networks and and i support that i have been very very cautious in my own personal work to bring this in which is why i don't talk about it much because 
I worry about the backlash of this is some, you know, new age spirituality or brainwashing or, you know, Eastern mysticism bullshit. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm sensitive to that. But I, I'll tell you a quick example of why I do think it's it's has great resonance potentially. When I was described the summer program I worked in, we would have this these rich, um, you know, curriculum or d- discipline based uh, intense experiences during the day. And then we would have a recreation period for kids. And then after dinner, we would have these group meetings, which is where we had the kind of affective curriculum I described with conversations about things that matter to kids personally. Um, but then we would have evening programs and we had some great stimulating evening programs of all sorts. Um, t- twice a week, the evening programs, we had what we called smorgasbord night. And smorgasbord night was a time where teachers and students could propose a topic that they wanted to explore. And we had like 45 of these listed and, and students could go to anyone they wanted. And it was about like an hour and a half time frame. And it was all over the map. Well, because I had this experience of meditation, I order I developed a, a seminar, or I call it a seminar, a smorgasbord called Mind and Body Relaxation. And we described, and it was briefly, hey, did you know sometimes when you're feeling stressed or your mind is racing, that there are things that can slow that down and, and help you calm down? Uh, come in, come to my session and we'll explore this. So, so I offered that. The first, we did that, and we did these sessions twice in the two weeks. So the first week, I had about 40 out of 150 kids who came to my session. I had to have it in the gym and I told them to bring a towel. And basically what I did in this session was I just did some progressive relaxation techniques, you know, tense muscles, some basic visualization, you know, lie down, close your eyes, think of a happy pace, deep breathing, um, and then kind of a guided visualization. I didn't do, I didn't use the word meditation. I didn't introduce a mantra. I did these like four things and in an hour and 15 minutes, let's say. And I had kids literally come to me the next day and say, I had the best sleep I've had in a long time. One kid said to me, you opened a room in a house, you opened a room in a house that I didn't know I had. Where, where does this come from? The next week, 120, 110 out of 150 kids came and the other instructors and all other students were pissed off because they had planned a, a seminar and, and all these kids came to mind. I didn't advertise it. I didn't want that many kids, quite frankly, <laughs> but, and, and so I started doing that and I just, here's my takeaway from that. Letting Young people know that there's a way of dealing with the racing mind, the 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 roller coaster of emotion, and just stress that that there is a room in your mind where you can kind of calm these things, and that there are techniques that can help you do it. Uh, I just it validated that that's that's there. It's powerful, and and every subsequent session in in the summer workshop for several years, I had that same response. So in my ideal school, I would advertise this. I would say to parents and students, if you come to this school, you're going to get this. If you don't want it, don't come. But here's why we're doing it. Here's what it means. 
and you be the judge. Does it help you in any way, in any facet of your life and your learning? And my contention from my own experience and work with others is absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Likewise. I mean, it was, it's a shoe in for my, for my educational nirvana. Um, it's not something that I've experienced, experimented with greatly. Um, it came, it came in quite late into our practice in the learning skills curriculum, but the, but we did it. We started with guided visualizations like you, and we, we moved to a little bit of mindfulness. I personally don't really get on with mindfulness meditation and I sort of stopped meditating for quite a while and then it was when I stumbled upon TM and it and it just seems to really work with me because you like your mind actually the conversation with Mary Helen really made me think about this because she talks about the toggle between goal-oriented mental activity and the default mode stuff the sort of the internal stuff and it seems that that when you're trying to do mindfulness meditation, if you're trying to remain mindful of the breath, say, or a sound or, or a sensation, say, that that's trying to be goal-oriented. Exactly. And it, my, my mind would just flip to the default mode stuff. And I would just talk, I would basically, my, my default mode network just talks to myself, talks to itself about education endlessly. It kicks in about 10 minutes after I wake up. And then it's just my internal monologue is just education for most of the time. And so it seemed, it felt like trying to be, trying to do mindfulness meditation was just go, working against the grain of my mind. And it was just flipping to the default mode thing all the time. But when you do, when you have a mantra that you repeat to yourself repeatedly, it's sort of like you've given that goal bit of your mind a job to do. I listened to an interview with someone recently. They were like, you're giving the monkey a job to do. It's just like climb up this pole, climb down the pole, <laughs> climb back up the pole, climb down the pole. So it, it's sort of happy. It's got a job to do. And then it stops that toggling from happening. It sort of, it quietens down both parts of the mind and it seems to open up some third space, which is very mysterious and peaceful and quiet. But I'm, I'm fascinated by the mechanics of, of how that plays out. Yeah, um, but, but TM definitely works for me in a way that other methods don't. Yeah, at the risk of offending anybody, and I, I see great value in mindfulness practice, but I, I have studied this a, a, a fair amount and... I think you nailed the distinction that that mindfulness is often a, a focus and a fixation on something and being present. And, and, and I get that. I think there's value in that. But it's still, like you said, it's sort of goal oriented and it's fixated on something to think about and to be mindful of. Whereas transcendental meditation is literally the term means to transcend conscious thought. And the goal is the mantra is just a vehicle to slow down the noise. The most profound parts of meditation for me are, are when you realize you're not thinking. It, it's it's peaceful. It's it's there's no noise. Yeah. Uh, although the irony is when you recognize that you're now thinking again, right? <laughs> but as as one meditator said to me, it's when you when you have it, you've lost it. It's it's not until you've lost it that you have it. In other words, when you can literally transcend conscious thought, and for a lot of meditation, just thoughts are coming in randomly, but you just you don't fixate on them. You just keep with a mantra, and then it gets quiet. When I get to that point, and I don't get it in every meditation, but more often than not now, I do because it's habitual. I can tell you, James, I come out with, God, it's like, it's like a great night's sleep when you haven't had one for two weeks. Mm. It's like a shower when you're sweaty and grimy. It's, it's extraordinarily refreshing mentally with a physical 
manifestation of great relaxation. When I exercise, I get the opposite. When I exercise after I've recovered, physically I'm relaxed, but it has a mental spillover, right? With meditation, it's a mental, you go through the mental funnel, but it has a physical spillover. And so for me, the combination of regular exercise and regular meditation is just the best. And my best days literally are when I can swim in the morning first thing and then meditate or meditate and go for a run or a long walk. My thinking is better. I'm productive. I'm happier. Um, and, and those things matter. Absolutely. I th well, thank you. I'm really glad that you opened up that extra avenue of, of conversation there. As I say, you've inspired me. You, you, uh, you're a walking, talking advert for, <laughs> for, uh, for self-care through meditation and exercise. Um, I'm definitely going to, going to double down on this idea of having an evening, uh, an evening session as well. Um, Thank you for that. So, so let's let's circle back, if we may. There's there's the one one remaining question, which is about the solution. So we talked about the positives, and then the problem, the problem being the box, as it were, and then the solution as to as to where we go from here, because we have a you know a situation where most schools are not in alignment with some sort of future goal that that is appropriate for the world in which we live which, whether you like it or not, is a vastly, vastly different world to the world that existed even 20 years ago, um, largely because of the internet and largely because of changes to the, to the world of work so that there are no jobs for life anymore, that like the gig economy, people are having to reskill and relearn and clearly the ability to be adaptable. And also to have the, I love that, that polarizing question earlier, to have the, menta the mentality of an entrepreneur, of somebody who like you creates their own jobs, mm -hmm. who when you need, need to earn some money, you don't just think, oh, I'll look in the local paper and see if there's anything doing. You think like, you think outside of the box, right? <laughs> like outside of the box. And so, so what's the solution? How, how are we gonna get from where we are, sorry, this is another super broad question, and it might even be impossible to answer. But seeing as, as you have all this clarity, I want to I want to tap it for all it's worth. Um, how are we going to get from where we are to to where we need to be? Well, again, it's a broad question. I'll, I'll just think out loud on a couple of ideas. One idea is you get thoughtful, progressive educators to start their own schools. In the U.S., there's actually a structure in many states called charter schools where a group can go and petition, you know, a board of education or a state ed department to, to be able to form a school. And in so doing, they are released from a lot of the structures and strictures. Um, your, your colleague, Kate, was very entrepreneurial and, and went to, uh, was it Honduras and, and studied? Uh, Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic and started a school. So, you know, that's one answer, although one that I think only a relatively few courageous people would actually would actually uh, enact. But that's one possibility. In other words, create your own school based on the system that uh, that you believe is sound. And and I've laid out a blueprint for what that the elements of such a school um, in leading modern learning. But more generally, if I could give advice to policymakers. I would say, do what you and I have referred to several times. Let us create two or three models or types of schools in a region, and let's allow 
uh, people to choose. So let's have a traditional knowledge-based, disciplined, structured, everybody on grade level with report cards as we know them, schools, which work for many, many kids, as you noted. But let's have one or two alternative schools. One might be more vocationally oriented around authentic work and apprenticeships around you know, present and emerging careers. And let's have uh, a Nirvana school of the sort that I described in, in the summer programs or that Kate is creating. Um, and let's let's let the let's let the, the better mousetrap win out. You know, because if we had a couple of different school models, people would talk, people would see the results and and uh, people would gravitate toward the ones that they, they thought were more successful. So ideally, that's a solution. As you pointed out, one size fits all schooling has proven incapable of being effective for many, many students. And the casualties are well known. So let's not keep doing the same old thing. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing uh, your time with me today, Jay. It's been brilliant. I don't think that we got as far as I would have liked in, in, in designing my ideal school. It's obviously a, quite a weighty task um, to, to undertake. And it was maybe a little bit optimistic to think that we were going to shoehorn that in along the way. Um, but I've definitely got some seeds of an idea. And I would really love to have you on at some point in the future to um to find out more about this educational nirvana um and to think about a model that people could maybe think about replicating um so yeah a massive thank you and i'm also really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the implementation science program that i'm putting together which includes some bits i might have to get in touch with you offline it includes some bits on uh, backwards design and setting really smart goals which i'm definitely not as good at as i thought i was <laughs> so I'll, I'll do some more work on that but thank you hugely for, for sharing your your wisdom with us um do you have any final requests for listeners what would you suggest that people should do if they want to explore these ideas further well, first of all, let me thank you, James, and also compliment you on actually not being afraid of a long form discussion as we've had. Uh, I think too many things today are are Twitter like or I've been on podcasts where they say, you know, you got to finish your answer in, in 48 seconds because the listener <laughs> will, will, will drop off. So so good on you for having a chance to go deep on on topics. Um. What was your question? <laughs> oh, <laughs> first, well, first of all, I, I mean, thank you for that, and 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 I am, um, um, I'm, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised by how well the long form format has worked. And like personally, I listen to lots of very long podcasts. Mm. Um, I've listened to short ones as well, but I really like the long ones where you go in depth. Um, in a way that you just don't get when you when you have this soundbite culture, and I think that that's one thing that the the, the world of podcast has revealed, which is that people have this thirst for for long form, deep conversations with people who really know what they're talking about without any advertising breaks. <laughs> you know, like people people have much more of a thirst for that deep knowledge than anybody would have anticipated a few years ago, and so. Uh, who knows where this thing will go? But I've I've learned such a lot out of it, and so have many people who listen to this. This podcast has had something like seventy thousand, eighty thousand listens in its first year, which just blows me away. But like, it's clear that people 
you know, are hankering for for in-depth conversations of this nature. So, um, yeah, I'm very pleased that it's that it's working as well as it as well as it is doing. Um, and so, but I didn't have a, a, a follow-up question other than to just say thank you very much for your for your time. Oh, oh the question was—I beg your pardon. <laughs> the question was: Do you have any requests for our listeners? Oh okay. yeah, thank you. I, I, my mind was uh, in need of meditation after our, our four-hour talk. <laughs> um, well, the requests are: if you're interested in the ideas that you've heard, um, the book "Leading Modern Learning" is one, and that, as I mentioned, that's kind of big picture. If you're interested more in the the pedagogy and, and teaching for meaning, making and transfer, the book Teaching for Deeper Learning is a new one that I recommend. If you're interested in more, quote, authentic assessment, uh, and actually let me cast it not just as authentic assessment, but more authentic learning around rich, authentic tasks and projects, I have a book on that topic that's recent called Designing Authentic Tasks and Projects. Um, uh, and then understanding by design There's a whole series of books related to that. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say in the latter part of my career that I have a body of work that under underscores and, and manifests the principles that I've come to believe in. And my website, which is just my name, jmcty.com has all the books, articles, many, many resources that people can tap into. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to uh, to continuing this conversation, to, to delving further into your educational nirvana and to hearing your thoughts on implementation science when the time comes. So until the next time, um, I will bid you a lovely remainder of your what looks like a nice sunny afternoon over there. Uh, it is. So thank you for the opportunity and thanks to all the listeners who are able to, <laughs> to uh, persist through this uh, long meandering but rich conversation. Time is a measure of change